but yeah, we'll get that. I figure we'd have a chance to like really dig into the codex over the you know on Monday and then Tuesday we can record and actually have a more informed opinion. <laughs> when has that ever stopped us before? I know it's never stopped us before. See Adeptus Mechanicus review, but. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that proudly declares Ave Imperador. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yes, if you haven't guessed, uh, we are talking about the brand new Codex Adeptus Sororitas, which has just hit. Uh, in fact, when we are recording this, it just went up for pre-order. But thanks to uh, Games Workshop, we have a uh, preview copy they've provided to us. So we'll be digging into... Uh, that book in the second half of the show. Uh, but first, as always, uh, news, new releases, and your listener mail. And uh, we had some actually interesting bits of news and uh, some new releases teased, or at least announced. Well, I guess pre-orders announced. First off, I think the biggest thing that people have been wondering is when we were going to get a new set of FAQs. And obviously, with a, a lack of, of events going on over the last year, because of COVID, you know, pretty much outside of like New Zealand and Australia and a few events in the US, but nowhere near the volume that we used, that we had before the pandemic, uh, that data to show that like what they needed to tweak just wasn't quite there yet. But now as events have started happening and we're starting to see tournament results come in, they can start collecting that data. Uh, a set of, of FAQs was released. And uh, there's a few notable things. Some are changes, some are clarifications. The first one that I think everybody was kind of waiting for was, what are they going to do about Drukari? Because Drukari have had something like a 70 to 75% win rate. It's been bonkers. I don't see a problem with that. And- I do. I'm sure. Drew, I'm sure. Drukari, most, a lot of Drukari players, like old school Drukari players, don't either. But it was pretty much making the uh, competitive, like the last month of the competitive yeah. scene, has apparently just been stagnant because it's like Drukari try to figure out how to beat Drukari, and obviously you can because they don't have a hundred percent win rate. But a lot of some of those wins are from mirror matches, you know, or some of the yeah, losses from, are playing from- mirror. From what I understand, the only the only faction they don't have a winning record against is themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Which, Which is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really is. So uh, there were a few problems that Drukhari had as far as balance. Um, one was really cheap transports that got more durable in the form of raiders. Raiders' price didn't really go up, but their toughness did. And so you saw a lot of raiders, and raiders pack decent guns, so uh, that was a problem. Uh, you had Drazar being surprisingly cheap for as killy as he is. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, uh, there were issues with the fact that Nobody was really taking the real, well, I mean, not nobody, but the good choice was not necessarily the real space raiders because you had to take like all three, like you had to take, you know, a bit of all three types of 
of Drukari, but if you just like, I just want Cabals and Witch Cults, the better way to go was going with the uh, Triple Patrol Detachment. And the thing was, you ended up up on uh, on CP because they basically all ended up costing zero. Like, And then you'd get the extra points from having your Warlord in one of them. Mm-hmm. So now they've changed changed things up so that if uh if ever if you're taking a bunch of uh patrols then not only does their cp cost become zero but their command benefits also become nothing you gain you don't gain any extra cp for taking a triple patrol army so that should hopefully start nudging people back into real space raiders which I is i so. think where they want to be well it also uh, says that maybe they need to do something with homunculus covens to make them attractive well, see, they, they, there was something that was attractive about them, and that was taking one of the custom obsession covens and using the dark technomancer ability, which made your weapons nastier, and then people applied them to the liquid fire guns that racks take. And so you had these auto hit weapons that were just murdering things on troops that were relatively cheap and hardy, because racks are some of the tougher troops that the, uh, Drukari have. It's like, cause the, the penalty has like, oh, you're like, you can take the weapon, but it's like you're minus one to hit or something. It's like, well, that doesn't really affect liquefiers. Yeah. Like, so it's like you get the benefit, yeah. but no downside. <laughs> so now they change that so that the dark technomancer's obsession says that it, it does not apply to weapons that don't roll to hit. Makes sense. Yeah. Liquefier guns and twin liquefier guns can never be enhanced. So. That will tone them down considerably. And then Drazar and the Raider both went up 10 points each. Which, now bad. taking like 5 or 6 Raiders is a decent chunk of your army extra. So, that's good. And then in the core FAQ, they also explained that... Because uh, something we talked about, I think we touched on briefly last episode, was that Drukari have a piece of gear in one of the... Uh, in the uh, War of Rust book for Cult of Strife, Witch Cults, where it lets you just, or maybe it's a war, I think it's a warlord trait that uh, lets them just, any attack you miss with, you get to roll again. Like, it spawns a new attack that you get to roll. And so a succubus with, like, razor flails would just do a ridiculous amount of, of attacks, and then the attacks would spawn more double attacks. And so they specified that in the case of exploding attacks, it only ever generates what, like rules that would give you more attacks per attack don't apply to exploding attacks. Like once the attacks exploded, it's just single off attacks. That's kind of how they've ruled it in the past. So I guess I'm glad they're being consistent. Yeah. So that, that is, that is helpful that they, they did that. So that. I mean, Drukhari are still going to be good. They're still going to be a very cost-effective force that plays the objective game really well. It's just this this takes away or tones down some of the nastier combos and tools that they've been taking that have made them very difficult to deal with. So maybe they'll bring that win rate down to like maybe a 60, 65%. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, that, so there's those FAQs. Then they also did some more clarifications that, uh, you know, especially expanding on some of the, uh, the rare rules and things like that. And they even did a designer's commentary that explained one of them with a very clear set of illustrations. So some of the things they've expanded on, and a couple of, like, a couple of the big ones are 
rare rules always fight first and always fight last. So anything where it's like, when you charge, you fight first. If you have a rule that says you always fight first, you fight first. How does that interact with a rule that says somebody always fights last? Because we're starting to see more units that have auras or abilities where they select somebody and that you, that whoever they select can't fight until everybody else has fought or they always fight last in some way. And as we've gotten more and more of these rules, like how do they interact? How does that interact with the, the counteroffensive stratagem that lets you interrupt so this is what they, they added. I'm just going to go ahead and read their errata here. Add to the following paragraphs to the end of this rare rules entry. Note that it doesn't matter how many rules are affecting a unit that enable it to fight first, or how many rules are affecting it that allow say cannot be selected to fight until after all the other units have done so. If a unit under the effects of one or both of these kinds of abilities simultaneously, the unit instead fights as if none of the rules are affecting it. Note that the counteroffensive stratagem requires you to select a unit that is eligible to fight. That means if a unit is under the effects of a rule that says it is not eligible to fight until after all other eligible units have done so, then unless that unit is also under the effect of, of a rule that allows it to fight first, it cannot be selected for counteroffensive stratagem. Uh, and then they list some of the examples of rules that allow units to strike first and some that allow, always make a unit fight last. And then they further on went with a designer's commentary that basically says the rare, like there's basically three separate steps. You players alternate selecting eligible fights, first units, which would include chargers, then eligible fights, normally units, and then eligible fights, last units, and then go on with an example of here's a bunch of space Marines charging a bunch of, uh, Necrons, including the Silent King, and here's how all these rules in this example are going to interact with each other. So they've like just clearing this up so that like it's not a big challenge or to understand it. So that that's a very useful set of rules. I like it because it's it's very similar to like what what like D and D fifth edition's big rules innovation was, in my opinion, which is advantage disadvantage. You either, if you have, if you have multiple things that give you advantage, you have advantage. If you have anything that gives you disadvantage and advantage, then you don't have either. Or if you have multiple things that give you disadvantage, you have disadvantage. And like they just streamlined it and simplified it's either, you know, one, two or three status. And I, I, I like that solution here where it's, you either have a rule that only lets you fight first, you have, you fight normal or you have a rule that only lets you fight last. And that, I really like the simplicity in that. And also the fact that you don't get the weirdness of, okay, so I have three rules that allow me to fight first and two rules right. that allow me to fight last. So I guess they counter, they counter each other and then I'm left with one that lets me go first. No, it's just, yeah, if you're, <laughs> the, uh, if you're uh, under any that do this and any that do the opposite, then they just cancel out complete that's the old that's the old pathfinder view of things well i get a plus one for this and a plus two for this and a plus three for this but a minus two for this so i'm at plus five no just stop <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then just yeah, with the no, extra like bit it. of and then yeah with the extra bit of explaining how like the counter the counter offensive strategy works so it's just like yeah it it lets you interrupt unless you specifically are told you're not allowed to inter like you wouldn't be allowed to fight yet anyway and then they also added a big block that specifies a, a new rare rule, talking about rules that count as remaining stationary. Uh, so if you have something that says like for this turn you remain, you know, count as remaining stationary, uh, or like you act as though you remain stationary. So they specify uh, 
Like, such rules, if they apply in the shooting phase, means that a unit is eligible to shoot even if it has advanced or fallen back this turn. And that last bit, falling back, it makes Tau players happy because Montka allows oh, nice. you, if you're within six inches of your commander, to act as if you rem- didn't move, if you remain stationary. So now you can actually fall out of combat and shoot again for a turn. That is that is huge for Tau. <laughs> yeah. No, they, and they also specify, like, uh, you don't count as having penalties for moving and firing heavy weapons. You don't count as having penalties if you advanced and fired assault weapons, if it applies in the shooting phase. They also say if it applies in the charge phase, which you don't see as often, but if they have a rule that says they count as remaining stationary in the charge phase, they can fall back in charge because they don't count as having fall, fallen back. Ooh. Yeah, or advanced. Okay. So, like, they can... Yeah, that's really nice. I'm going to have to take a minute to have my mind wrap around that one. Like I said, that that particular instance doesn't doesn't really come up much, but basically says, for all intents and purposes, if you are under a rule that says you remain stationary, you count as remaining stationary in a particular phase or even all turn, then like in those phases, you see like, it basically says, whatever, however you moved in the movement phase, ignore it. Act as if you had done just just stood there so rampant speculation time but like i could see that being something that's potentially applied in the future to like corn berserkers or Mm -hmm. retroactively applied to like banshees allowing them to be able to you know dedicated assault units to be able to assault fall back and still charge and kind of give them give those certain dedicated assault units de facto fly with the ability to hit disengage and then hit again that's I wonder if that's future proofing for for upcoming units because I, I could certainly I, I could see, see that see being that. useful. It, yeah. I could absolutely see that. I mean, as much as I like, I I just think there's going to be holes that get abused. I mean, sure, there'll be more facts to fix them, but mm-hmm. and also they already have specific rules for being able to fall back in charge and being able to advance in charge. So, but I think this is get kind of gives you a catch all where. If a unit got affected by a stratagem that didn't specify like a particular phase of the game, it's like until the beginning of your next turn, the unit counts mm-hmm. as remaining stationary. It would just let you, this lets you know that does also apply in the charge phase as well. I don't think, I don't know if it would necessarily replace like can't advance in charge or fall back in charge, but also those cases tend to be more specific. A lot of times you don't often see a unit that can both advance and fall back and still charge. It's usually that one is or true. the other. And Very this, this would basically can. say if you, yeah, if you fall under one of these rules, you can do both. They all, all, but they also clarify like, and if any other rules or stratagems would trigger off of a unit remaining stationary, uh, they would trigger in this case. But even if a reinforcement unit is subject to such a rule, it doesn't have an effect the turn they're set up on the battlefield. They all, like, if you get dropped in via, like, Deep Strike or Strategic Reserve, something like that, you always count as having moved. This, no of no ability can over, override that. Mm-hmm. And they said that also includes repositioned units or replacement units. So if you had something where you deep, you like you pull somebody off the table and deep strike them across the table, they count as having moved, even if they would have a rule that says they don't. And even if a, if a transport falls under the same rule, the people inside are not necessarily affected. 
and the people in the transport still have to act like the transport moved because so they can't get out after the transport moved unless there's a specific ability that would allow them to disembark. And then finally, even if a unit is subject to such a rule, it can't start an action if it's advanced or fallen back. So just, you know, no advancing to an objective marker and then performing an action, even if you have a rule that might let you do it. That's fair. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, difficult ground for terrain. They uh, change the rules. If a unit makes a normal move, advances or falls back, then you subtract two from the movement. Uh, they don't apply if every model in the unit can fly. They also don't apply if every model in the moving unit is Titanic and the terrain feature is less than three inches tall. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> uh, they also clarified, like, the like if every unit in your army rules like if every army unit in your army has this trait then you get this special rule they clarified that only is checked at the time you're building your army list so let's say you have a like you have a rule they don't have like i don't think they have one right now but for like chaos space marines it says like if every unit in your army has heretic astartes you get this ability and then you summon in demons later because it happened during the game, it doesn't count. Like, it doesn't turn off that ability. They also, you know, stuff like that. Supposedly there was something about charging. Oh, deep striking in reserves. Um, okay, here we go. Setting up reinforcement units. It's actually the very first one on the core book FAQ. Yeah, when a reinforcement unit is set up on the battlefield, the unit typically must be set up so there's more than a specified distance away from any enemy models. Uh, whenever such a distance is specified, when setting up a reinforcement unit on the battlefield, the distance always applies to the horizontal distance, even though normally you measure to and from the closest part of the model's base or hull. That means if we were to use the above example, when that unit is set up on the battlefield, it must be set up more than 9 inches horizontally from any enemy models. Okay, so basically... What people, what was happening was, I'm going to deploy this unit, and it has to, like, I'm going to deep strike this unit, and it has to be nine inches away. But you're up on terrain, or I'm, I'll put myself up on terrain, so I'm going to deep strike on top of this terrain, and that means, okay, I just have to be diagonally nine inches away. But then when I charge, I ignore terrain and intervening models, and I fly, so now I only have to make, like, a six-inch charge. And so they, they basically stopped those shenanigans and said, no, it's nine inches if you were looking straight down on the map. <laughs> so just catching little little gotchas and things like that. Yeah, that's, that's a good clarification. <laughs> yeah, so these just a, a number of, of clarifications that, uh, you know, just iron out some wrinkles. And there like a number of factions got FAQs, not everybody. Some of them were relatively minor, although there was one that Chaos Space Marine players aren't terribly happy about and that's with uh warp time because you used to people used to do chaos legion soup where they'd take a couple of different legions and use like uh word bears tricks to cast spells better or, or things you know things like that and mm -hmm. so uh you warp time you would just target a heretic astartes unit and now warp time specifies you can target a unit from your with like the legion bracket so ah that so, sucks so if you have like yeah so or like if you have a thousand sun sorcerer and you're going yep. to you have a thousand suns detachment and a like world eaters detachment you can't slingshot the world eaters forward with a thousand suns and the thousand suns was... update even specifies thousand suns <sighs> only 
That sucks. Yeah, I remember back in the day, people would take Morty and Magnus and use Magnus to slingshot Mortarian up the board. And uh, yeah, can't do that. If it anymore. worked, you would you would wreck shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that does not work anymore. Because if there was an army that was tearing up the charts right now, it's one yeah. of the Chaos Space Marines. Exactly. Can't ever let us have fun. Nope, you you get nothing. Still, nice. I'm sorry. Still feel better than I do than than Tau players though. So you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and I can say that because I'm a Tau player. But <laughs> are you though? When's the last time you played Tau? I, you know what? That's not relevant to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I'm barely a 40k player because the last time I played 40k was uh, August, almost, almost, yeah, August, almost a year ago. Anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> Moving, moving swiftly along. <laughs> moving swiftly along. Uh, so there was that. We also got um, a new cop, a new version of Chapter Approved, uh, which includes the new another set of updated points. Although it was an interesting uh, note they had to make about that, in that this book was written with the. Uh, like when this book was written, it was based on their original plans to re release armies and those plans confirmed that gray knights and thousand sons were supposed to be out by now and because of delays what what could be causing delays i can't imagine (laughs) but they did confirm that we are getting codexes for them probably after maybe after orcs may but actually probably before orcs because if they're supposed to be out now because the thing is, yeah. the points in here are based off of the new codex, where they have, like, more wounds each, and there are new abilities, and so they've been rebalanced. So we now know what the point costs are in the new codexes. However, those point costs would completely wreck the balance, n- not in their favor, for the current army. What? You so, mean making, like, all Grey Knights go up by, I assume, 10 or 15 points without getting yeah, out yeah, of a bad idea? Yeah, because, you know... Because there's nothing like kicking an army that's down in the nuts. Because if, if there's one army that was tearing up the charts. <laughs> so so they released a, a downloaded, like, temporary patch until their codexes are released, which apparently the only differences in them is land raiders are slightly cheaper. Otherwise, they are the exact same cost as they had in, the, like, the January update. <laughs> But we know those codexes are coming, and they should have been out by now. And yet, there there are some armies that get some drops here and there, or get get a couple of buffs, uh, or you know, a couple of boosts, which I guess become nerfs. But the other thing is, we got the new um, grand tournament packet for the events that are starting to spin up now, and the main missions themselves didn't change at all. But the uh, some of the secondaries were. Uh, they didn't edit secondaries. They just replaced them with other secondaries that had similar but more balanced versions. And more balanced often in the case to make it actually easier to score. Uh, so, like, for example, one that you saw a lot, you that you saw used a lot, and I saw it in two of the games I played yesterday, were Deploy Scramblers. Which, Deploy Scramblers is like you perform an action, like... And I think it was like once in your deployment zone, once in the middle, and once in your opponent's deployment zone. And if you do it three times, you score ten points. If you do it twice, you score nothing. It it was all or nothing. 
Hmm. And so they've replaced. There were a couple of things that were like that, where if you didn't do the action enough times, you got nothing. And so they've replaced them with more progressive scoring versions. So, like, there are still things that count what you did at the end of the game, but now we're seeing more things where it's like you get you can get partial credit for trying for trying to finish it. Um, you also get they also replaced one where you got a kill point for each unit that you killed or for each, or I think it was for each model that you killed. You get a point for each model you killed. You'd get 10 points if it was a vehicle that had like a vehicle or monster had 10 or more wounds. And then you added up those points and divided them by 10. And that's how many points you got, which really sucked if you were playing against a small elite army that didn't have anything that had 10 or more wounds because you just couldn't get any points doing that. And so now they have one where you actually as everything that's not a vehicle, monster or character, you add up the number of wounds they had. So if you're fighting like a marine army, everybody's worth 2 points. And then you add that tally up and divide by 10. So, you know, just things okay. like that to kind of make some of these secondaries either more easily scorable or apply to more armies so that it's you don't have a lot because that was always one of the problems with itc missions back in the day was uh finding missions like trying to to craft that army that your opponent just couldn't score anything against like you had your opponent had no good choices and so they're trying to even that out a bit so that there are there are more good choices to take that will at least get you some points and uh, Dennis, as you can confirm, playing to the actions and playing to the objectives is the way to win in this game now. It, it truly is, and secondaries really were that in the couple, couple games I played earlier. Is Primary actions, you're, you're guaranteed points, but secondaries, a lot of them didn't give you the full 15, even if you met it, or it was an all or nothing. So I think these changes will help balance that out. Yeah, absolutely, and... I'm looking forward to to trying them out at uh, Show Me Showdown. Uh, let's see. And then uh, we had another bit of news because this week has been Skulls Week for uh, 40K video games. And so uh, they did a reveal of a number of games. Uh, so uh, some of the things that, like, the last, up, the last bit of DLC for Total War Warhammer 2... Uh, more teases for Total War Warhammer 3, including uh, Scarbrand being, and a whole ton of corn stuff being dropped into the game, which is yeah. cool. <laughs> but uh, something that's uh, even a couple things that are very 40k specific. So we've had like Vermintide for Warhammer Fantasy has been a very popular co-op like Left for Dead style shooter. Um, and we've got Vermintide and Vermintide 2 and they're very very popular very good games and we had we knew we had uh warhammer 40k dark tide coming which was what if vermintide but against chaos cultists and you are like imperial guardsmen and inquisitorial acolytes that kind of thing and so we've we had a little bit more information dropped about it uh this week including the fact that not only is this game looking fantastic but it's also going to be written fantastically because Dan Abnett's writing the story for it. Nice. And uh, he even talked about the reason why he likes... He, he 
he doesn't necessarily like stories that, that are about space Marines that much because he finds like the human characters like guardsmen. He mentioned, of course, that he'd written the Gaunt's, that he's writing the Gaunt's Ghost series is that guardsmen are more human and immediately relatable. And so he wanted that to be the experience that players have. And so he's writing the story that Dark Tide is going to tell. And apparently there's going to be like this whole hub world area and then you'll go on different missions that are given to you. And so I'm, I'm excited to, for this one now. I mean, it always was looking neat, but I'm absolutely excited to, to see the story because Abnett's a fantastic author. I mean, he's a yeah. really good writer. Well, and like, obviously like everyone knows the Gaunt's ghost books and then the, the inquisitor books that he's written. But like one of the things that still blows my mind is he was the writer on the relaunch of guardians of the galaxy, which became yes. what the MCU Guardian of the Galaxy movies were, which, yeah, he's just a fantastic writer. So I'm excited that he's attached. Yeah. Um, let's see. There's a couple of, uh, let's see. There's a, mo- a mobile game called Lost Crusade, which is a is a mobile base builder. If that's your thing, it's going to be your, I think it's actually already out. And from what I understand, yeah, it's a base builder. If it's, if that's, if you like those, great. Not really my genre of game, but. Um, Necromunda Hired Gun is currently out. Uh, it just came out like a week or so ago. Uh, if you like Doom, it's apparently that kind of like fast frenetic gameplay with like lots of upgrades that you can like, including your robot dog, which you can apparently pet the dog. I mean, you better and be. That's a to. critical, that's a critical feature. I mean, seriously, in any game. <laughs> uh, Warhammer 40k Battle Sector. We'd seen a little bit of this. It's kind of, a. Uh, it's a little bit of a, I think it's a, a turn-based strategy, but it's going to be like a console, like PC and console-based turn-based strategy. So don't think quite so much Dawn of War uh, as more of like kind of a grid map type thing going on. And it was like Blood Angels versus Tyranids, and now they've specified that uh, Sisters will also be playable in the game. So Sisters are getting a lot of love lately. Because, like, sisters are yeah. featured in Lost Crusade. There's an entire uh, Battle Sister VR game that's available and is getting more levels now. Which I wish I had a, a rig that could play... Well, I have a rig that could play VR games, but I wish I could also play VR games without vomiting, so... You, you wish you had <laughs> I mean. a brain that could run VR games. <laughs> yeah, I, my brain cannot run VR games. I mean, the, only way, to, the only way to get good at it is to practice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the cleaning pills are exorbitant. <laughs> also, the scent uh, of vomit just makes me vomit more. It's just... It, it, it's well, a no-win situation. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we're, we're getting an orc-based uh, 2D action platform shooter called Shooter's Blood and Teeth. Yeah, I saw that. That's just a perfect, like... That's a perfect game style for an orcs. Like, that's just on point. I love that. <laughs> and apparently done by the developers of the game Guns, Gore, and Cannoli. So, <laughs> if that's your thing, that... That sounds appropriate. Yep. And then, uh, the last 40k thing is a teaser for a game that had not been announced before this. Chaos Gate Demon Hunters. Now, 40k Chaos Gate is an old PC game that was basically what if XCOM but Space Marines against like Chaos. And now we have what if XCOM but with modern production values 
or what if Chaos Gate, but modern production values and Grey Knights. Uh, there's no gameplay yet. All we have is like a cinematic trailer with a whole bunch of uh, uh, Grey Knights with like Nemesis Halberds glowing blue, which looks awesome. But then the other reveal is, oh, and they have a Black Library author for that one. And it's Aaron Dembski Bowden. That's pretty cool as well. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm really impressed that not only are I mean, obviously, like since Games Workshop opened up like the video game licensing thing, we've had a ton of games like thrown at like at the license and some of them have stuck and some of them have not. And some of them have been a bit crap and some of them have been okay or a little, or a little niche. And and these are still going to be kind of niche games, but I'm impressed that not they're like picking a few like flagship titles and really pouring a ton of resources into them, including like some of their best authors doing the storyline or just like, you know, like the Total War games for Warhammer, like that's been one of the most successful Total War games released. And so they are, they are all in on that, including like, yeah, we know three's not out yet, but we're going to continue to give you DLC for a little bit longer on like two, just because it's so popular. Like they're keeping those things going. And then, yeah, and just like throwing big resources around games that they think are going to be big hits and could actually bring people into, you know, mm-hmm. into the hobby. So, uh, Skulls Week was interesting. Uh, and then there's, they, they mentioned the, the ton of other games that are like currently out or have special DLC or microtransactions available, include, or things that are just getting brought into other games like Warhammer 40k ga- tanks in World of Tanks. How about a World of Warships Helldrake ship that has a big old Helldrake head and, uh, autocannon at the prow? I mean, I'm cool because, with that. Because, <laughs> without, I mean, just why not, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, there's there's a lot of going on in the 40K license right now. And, you know, they've also given us a little bit of uh, additional preview on Angels of Death. We're still waiting on details later this month on uh, what Warhammer Plus is going to look like and how much that's going to cost. So, uh, I think this is going to be a busy year for Games Workshop, and that's not even counting all the Age of Sigmar stuff with the new edition dropping, which uh, they've got pre-orders for that coming up. They're kind of doing the Indominus thing where their pre-orders are going up like mid-June and the box comes out like first week of July. So, yeah, they're they're going to have a lot on their plates and they're still playing catch-up as evidenced by the Grey Knight and Thousand Suns codexes. So, The final thing was this week was when uh, Adeptus Rorotas... Uh, stuff went up for pre-order. So as of yesterday at time of recording, the Sisters Codex went up. Morven Vol went up. Paragon Warsuits went up. Also, if you wanted Paragon Warsuits, too bad. They're already temporarily sold out. Yeah. The, the Dogmata, the Celestian Sacrosancts. Uh, one model they did not mention on here is the Palatine from Piety and Pain is now available for pre-order. So... Uh, they didn't show it in the list for some reason, I guess because it was an already existing model, but it would have been nice for them to mention that. Um, also, yeah. <laughs> New Sisters Dice, uh, and they actually found a way to make Fleur de Lis Dice readable by just using Fleur de Lis as the pips in the normal pip arrangement, and then the Ecclesiarchal Eye as your six, which... Yeah, I like I them. Would, They're in a nice ivory, so they match my army, so I'm happy. Still would have preferred to only use the symbol on the one or the six, but at least the symbols are different enough. 
<laughs> well, also the symbol on the one is the same symbols on the twos and the threes and the fours and the fives. So it's yeah, it's it's easier to read than most. Yeah, yeah. the The one is just bigger, basically. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I and I think it's a, it's a fair critique that they could have made the one smaller and made it a little bit more clear. But having the special the special symbol that's different from everything else on mm-hmm. the six is at least fine. It's yeah, it's 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 better. It's better than most of the other, you know, other dice sets. I I, I do like them, and like just yeah. white ivory dice like are just you know classic. <laughs> yeah, very much so. So that that is everything for news and new releases, uh, and we're going to cover the listener mail. But first, before we do that. Uh, Kevin noted that there was one thing we forgot to do in our <laughs> Adeptus Mechanicus, and we even mentioned it at the beginning of the segment, right? <laughs> that we were going to do yeah. it, and then we totally spaced. Yeah, because it was a long about, episode. <laughs> it was a long episode, and we talked that we were going to do the Combat Patrol review for Adeptus Mechanicus at the end after we, you know, reviewed the Codex so that people could understand and have a good idea of what we were actually talking about. And then we got to the end and we just completely blanked on it and forgot to talk about it. So, yeah, I wanted to take a few minutes and just discuss the uh, the Combat Patrol Adeptus Mechanicus, uh, which is a Tech Priest Engineer, a unit of Catafron Destroyers, a unit of Skatari Rangers, and an Onager Dunecrawler. So it is only four units. <laughs> Which is interesting because it is fewer units than any of the other. But to be fair uh, to to GW in designing this, it's also about a hundred points cheaper than any other combat patrol. The way this is kitted out on the box, this combat patrol gives you four units and four hundred and thirty points, which the previous other two cheapest. Um, Combat patrols were came in at 475, and those were Drakari and Deathwatch, which actually had like easy ways to upgrade it and make it more expensive, you know, and get it up to that 500 point range. There's flexibility with this because all of these units, other than the tech, you know, the tech uh, engines here are customizable. You can make them as rangers or vanguard or, you know, breachers, destroyers, etc. But it still doesn't get you anywhere near the points of another combat patrol like on its own it's a pretty good combat patrol everything in here is stuff that you will use it's stuff that you will need duplicates of so if you're building out the core of a adeptus mechanicus army doubling this up and getting two units of rangers two units of breachers two onager dune crawlers that's all really good like that's very you know that that's all stuff that you're going to use it's just by itself it, Mechanicus runs into that problem that we talked about before with like Imperial Guard, where the army is body heavy and like cheap enough that you just don't get the same like bang for your buck point wise as you do in some of the other combat patrols. So I kind of got started looking into this and trying to figure out and like, okay, how could I keep it within the same roughly price equivalent range and make this more on par with other combat patrols? So I kind of went through and I was looking at what you what what's in the other combat patrol boxes and what's in this one and i i noticed that this is four units two troops most of the other combat patrols have two you know one two or three troops so like there are a few that only have one there's a few that have more but i was like okay could i replace the breachers or the the catafarn destroyers with another unit 
that would be roughly the same cost dollar wise. So you're not, you know, making the the box like a super valuable thing, but also uh, make this box a little bit better, make it worth more points wise, comparable with the other combat patrol. So you can just pick it up and kind of go and be comparable with other other people that pick up a combat patrol and also showcase models that are unique to Mechanicus and that are not in any of the other like start collecting boxes or any of the other combat patrol boxes for Mechanicus. So what I came up with is replacing the Cataphron destroyers with a unit of Castellan robots. And I will say up front, I get why they don't do this because Castellan robots are really good and they probably don't want to make them this easy to get. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> But they are exactly, I think they're like two or three dollars more than a unit of destroyers. Um, the Castle and the Robots, I think, are 75 US, and I think the Cataphron destroyers are 68. So, like, it's comparable price wise. It's three models. You're swapping them out for three models because it's the two Castle and the Robots and the Data Smith. So, same model count. So, you're keeping in that, you know, 15 to 20 model range. You give Mechanicus. An extra, and it gives Mechanicus like that this box a little bit extra firepower because with this one you would have uh, the Tech Priest Engine Seer, and then uh, the unit of Vanguard, and then a unit of the Castle and the Robots and the Data Smith and the Oninger Dune Crawler. It gives you more firepower because you then have two heavy units. It gives you an elite, which yeah, technically doesn't take up a data you know, a slot, but you know whatever. So it technically gives you like on paper five units instead of four. The same number of models, roughly the same value, but it gets you about a hundred points more in value. It puts this hypothetical one at five thirty, which is right there, smack in the middle of all the other combat patrols, which range from four seventy five to five eighty. So mm -hmm. I, I get why they don't want to do it because it would be giving away models that they want to sell. You know, more of the castle and robots themselves. But like, I think the castle and robots are really cool models and really kind of eye catching. Not that the destroyer, you know, the Cataphron destroyers aren't, but it just gives, it would give this box a different feel, and I think would put it on par with the other ones as a starting combat patrol, because, you know, the idea of this, as we've mentioned before, it's, this is a new player product. You walk in, you pay $140, here's your army, you can start playing with this. If you walk in and say, ooh, I really like, you know, the Adept Adeptus Mechanicus style, and then your friend goes, ooh, I really like... Blood Angels, for example, and you both pick up your combat patrols, you bought, you put them down, you build them, you start playing, you are going to get wrecked by Blood Angels every time because they have almost 130 more points than you. Like, yeah. it's, it, you know, so it's like, I think that they could have rebalanced this slightly better to make it, make it more on par with the other ones. Because right now I look at it across the board, it's about 100 points fewer than every other combat patrol. It's four to five power level less than everyone else. And it's, you know, almost it's one of the lower on one of the ones that's not lower on the model count side as well. So it's like, it's not, it's just not a super great deal. So I think that you could easily swap it. And I do like the Cataphron destroyers. I, I like the units that are in there. I thought about maybe switching out the Skatari for something else, but I think in a combat patrol, you want to have the Skatari in there because that oh, is no, you, this definitely well, they're, the, they're the kind of core. Yeah. Yeah, and they're kind of trying to push you to to use Skatari. I think, you know, and Castle and Robots fall under this, but I think one of the reasons they probably did want to make sure they had, like, a Skatari and then, like, the Breachers or something was also to have a unit. You'd have a unit that could benefit from Doctrina with the, the Skatari and then a unit that would uh, benefit from Canicles as the mm -hmm. Destroyers 
would benefit from canicles, whereas everything and the tech priest was. I'm I'm always surprised because they did this with the last start collecting box for Mechanicus as well. They they've been leaning hard on the tech priest engine seer as the cheapy HQ to throw in, rather yeah. than like they used to do the tech priest Dominus. And I, that struck me as a bit of an odd choice, but the tech priest Dominus doesn't get you a ton of extra points because he's still a pretty bargain yeah. HQ. So. The one that thematically makes the most sense for this, and I absolutely understand why they didn't put it in here, is if the Skatari Marshal had came out a year ago, he would be a perfect HQ for this box. But I also understand that he's a brand new model that just got released. They're not going to put him in a start collecting set yet. So Right, right. But like but the Skatari Marshal would have been perfect for this. Because he he plays in with the Skatari and then you've got you know, like yeah. So it's it's interesting. I, I, I think, it, obviously, they didn't get any more other than the Marshall. I think uh, Admet could benefit from having a wider range of HQ options, but obviously they didn't get that in their codex, but that's, so that's kind of I mean, of they've a, got a more than they have in a long while. Yeah, they had, they right. have more than they've no, ever had before, but still, yeah. It's better, but I, I still think they I still think they suffer from a lack of good HQ models. Like, they either have super cheap HQ models or they have Belisarius Call, and, like, that's... I don't know. They need something that's kind of in that mid range, and I don't know what that is. You know, I, yeah. But so I don't. Know. I thought this was an interesting one. I I was a little bit underwhelmed by the one they actually put out. I think if you like Admech and you want to start playing, I think it's a solid place to start because every model in here, other than the the engine seer, is customizable. Like so, you can build multiple units out of it. So picking up if you wanted to start Mechanicus, picking up two of these is not bad. Or picking up one of these, and if you can find the old start collecting box that has the transport, that's a really good pairing with it. Mm-hmm. Just by itself, I thought this was kind of a little bit underwhelming compared to what we've seen in the other start, uh, the other combat patrols. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's that's a fair uh, assessment of it, and it does. Yeah, it surprised me that it comes in as solo, considering how good they've been with all the others. Yeah, well, and, and especially you know this was released. At the same time as the Necron and the Space Marine combat patrols, which are, you know, both contain more models, more power level, more points, more variety. And they, they both only included one HQ. So, like, you know, in the Necrons, you got an HQ, a troop, uh, you know, an elite, a flyer. Like, you got a lot more variety in what the army does. Whereas in this, you only get four units and two of them are troops. So, I don't know. It's a... Uh, it's kind of an interesting, it was an interesting decision. And uh, we do have, um, they haven't put up for pre-order yet, but we'll be talking in the Codex review section, assuming we actually remember to do it this time, about <laughs> what we know about the upcoming Sisters uh, Patrol. Because uh, yeah. I will say, as, as a bit of a spoiler, it does fall into the sweet spot that we want to see for yes for uh, and it's patrols. So. And it's, it's oddly similar to something we said before. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Why? It's almost like we're psychic or something. I know. Or we, or, know how so, to, or, or we just follow trends, you know? Or it's so bone stupidly obvious that, like, even we got it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of things that we sometimes don't get right, so we have to have people write to us, let's go ahead and talk about listener mail. Uh, so, uh, as always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and if you want to know how to have your letter read on the air, we'll tell you how at the end of the segment. Uh, so we've got five today. Uh, first up, uh, from James Bachelor. And I, I want to throw a uh, caveat in here, um, about the letters that we get. 
Uh, if you have sent a letter to us and it has not been read on the air, it is most likely not because we decided it was not worthy of being read. I don't know if we've ever had a letter where we just didn't like, yeah, screw it, we're not reading this. However, when we were when I was putting together the audio clips for the tenth anniversary episode, I was like, man, we are just not getting any. Like we, I had like two to work with. I was like, where are all the others? And it turns out they were hiding in my spam folder. Uh, so uh, I've made it a habit now to start checking my spam folder and I have found a couple of letters that have slipped through the gaps and uh, been missed. So I'm trying to make sure that I, I keep up on that. We'll, we'll be more diligent about making sure that we don't miss any uh, because otherwise, you know, the spam filter is just full of things promising me that my big gun will never tire and uh, not really interested in reading those on the air. So, but uh, yeah, so first one is from James Batchelor and James writes, Hi there. I've been catching up with podcast episodes today, and I just finished your 10-year celebration. Congratulations, by the way. Well, thank you, James. You've mentioned merch ideas, and the first thing that came to mind was simply a t-shirt with the slogan, I've listened to 10 years of preferred enemies, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Could be funny. <laughs> I'm, a f I'm a fan. Richard, can you make this happen? Uh, uh, I can work on that. <laughs> I, th I think we need to make this happen. So, James... Uh, you've you've just created our, our t-shirt and uh you know what if we can get one put together i'm gonna contact you and send it send one to you for free for for having the idea so we'll all i'll keep you updated on that so he continues i found your podcast extremely helpful as i make my return to 40k after a long hiatus third edition Ooh, you are coming from the old times <laughs> <laughs> The first time I played an assault phase, I couldn't stop asking what my opponent's weapon skill was. That's enough, <laughs> That's enough rambling for now. Time to start working on my pile of shame and get my Sons of Rust ready for war. Here's the next 10 years. Cheers, James. It's nice to know that, you see, 3rd Edition came out in like 97, 98. It's nice to know that, you know, 20 years later, you still have a pile of shame. It's something for, you know, for all of us to aspire to. I know Kevin and I are both well on our way. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I love. Seems this. Like I do grows. love the T-shirt idea. <laughs> it does just grow. I'm, I'm more. I'm working through it, and then they they keep dropping things for me to look at, like uh, the sisters <laughs> this week. Because I, I like sight unseen of the rules. I knew I wanted more of involved in the Paragon War suit. So yeah. All right. Um, next up, we have another returning player uh, from Phil J. Phil writes. Uh, to start, I'm an old player. I started back in 4th edition and took an 18-year hiatus, and I started playing again in the fall of 2019. I've spent a small fortune on the hobby trying to find an army that agrees with me. Unfortunately, I've literally put all the armies on the table minus Admech and Tau. I'm at the point of frustration of just hanging up the hobby because most information out there is geared towards tournament play. My question that I'm throwing out is... What would you guys recommend for a new player that is a truly friendly-to-play army? An army that is very straightforward, that you don't have to rely on army rules to try to remember. Thanks for your help. Keep up the good work. So there, There's always a good wall. There is always a good wall, yeah. And yeah. Uh, although it's going to depend on what their new codex looks like, because one of the trends I think we've true. seen in ninth edition codexes especially is more complications more complex stuff and I, they're, they're trying to push away from soup by having more mm -hmm. things that really only work if you play a 
pure army of one type. But even with that, we're seeing more complications of special rules that apply to some units and not others across the board or army construction restrictions. Like you can only have like for every one of the, you can't have more of these than you have these. Um, then you have like all the various uh, unit upgrades that you can buy, like whether they're death guard uh, weapons upgrades or the various master of the blank space Marines or the, the adeptus mechanicus different like branches of the mechanicus. And by the way, Adeptus Mechanicus, not the army you want to go for if you want the truly friendly to play, easy to understand, have to remember a lot of rules to reference army. That thing is chock full of rules. So uh, avoid avoid Admech for this this uh, particular thing. So for a new player that's a truly friendly to play army, I mean, Space Marines are always like the the stock answer of this is the easiest army to play because it's good at a lot of things not necessarily great at anything relatively resilient doesn't you don't have to play in the psychic phase if you don't want to um and for the most part like the unit rules and the like the faction rules are are pretty pretty easy to follow although apparently you've tried space marines how many flavors of space marines have you tried because there's a flavor for everybody Mm mm-hmm but uh, other than that, I mean, it's like of the armies that are out right now, it's like, yeah, they they do all get increasingly complex. And, and also it's this is a hard answer, hard question to answer without knowing like what kind of army you're wanting to play, because somebody who there might you might be somebody who enjoys a sit back and shoot army or you might be in somebody who really likes getting into assault or you might like somebody who likes getting into tactical movement and like harassing your opponent and shooting them from far what like moving around. So it's like it's hard to say what army might appeal to you. So I I would say. Um, as a like overview of the army and like how they they play and like what their their play style is, which might give you a better idea on specifically where to go. Goonhammer does a lot of really great articles about each faction, explaining kind of the fluff and how they play, as well as getting into you know codex breakdowns and more of the tournament play. But I think they do also have some really good articles that just do faction overviews. And then I kind of hesitate referencing this place but honestly their tactics articles are really good um 1d4chan has really good like overview tactic tactics articles for every faction and if you can kind of get over the snarkiness of it (laughs) yeah the 4chaniness of all of it they do actually provide really great overviews they they do also get into like the tactics and some of the tournament play stuff but they really do kind of give you they do give you a really good overview of the feel of each army and what they're good at and what they're not good at. You know, where they're really good at giving you kind of the the log line for each army. Tau are shooty and run away from melee. Word bearers are, you know, the religious fanatic chaos people. Uh berserkers, you know, corn corn armies and corn berserkers just want to run in and kill things. So it, it's it's really good at giving you an overview of what each faction is. And I think from there, you just pick what faction you are interested in and what you, you, from there, where you want to go. I also think if you're, if you're coming back into the hobby and you're looking to play definitely more friendly style, I would look at what models interest you. Cause that's how I started with this hobby is like, I found the army Tau, 
that had the most the models and the aesthetic that I liked. And then I kind of bought the models I liked and played with them and had a really great time with it, even though it was the end of fourth edition and fifth edition, and I did not win a single game with that army until sixth edition. But like I, I think that that's going to be key to you having fun with it is that you're going to be spending a lot of time building and painting and playing with these models if you like the army and the fluff and the models it's going to go a long way and you can learn the fiddly bits of any army with enough repetition but there are some that that are a little bit more straightforward to play richard mentioned orcs you know uh world eaters is also a pretty straightforward army to play death guard's pretty straightforward uh some of the factions start Death Guard gets a little bit trickier because of some of the, like the because it's a newer style codex. Yeah, it, it's, it. I mean, it's not. There's... It's not bad. It's it's yeah. It's one of the easier ones to play of the new codexes. So yeah, and and a, it would fall. It, there's a little bit of tricks around build style and like building the army that you have to like be aware of. But playing Death Guard is super easy. You know, like they're just tough and slow and prodding and resilient, and you know you you continually slowly advance like it they're they're a really fun and kind of simple tactical army to play but tau are always an army that i recommend for starting players even though as we constantly allude to they are garbage right now um because tau doesn't play in two of the four phases you know you you move and you shoot that's it you you don't have psychics and you have a melee phase but you're just gonna be pulling models off so uh, if you're interested in just focusing in on very like specific elements, you know, uh, and learning just a few phases of the game, Tau is always a good army to start with. See, I will toss in there is, is Custodes. Yeah, that's I what I was just going to yes. suggest. Yeah, they're they're very too. solid like Space Marines, and I feel like they have less rules. You have to remember. Yeah. Um, that which is, I mean, just, again, you you you're not playing the psychic phase at all, and they're very hardy, um, so you don't have to have as many models, but. They do right. have air quote factions, but they just came out and you can be okay without one. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but, um, but the, I mean, they have very few relics, very few any of that because they're very new. And I find them fun to play because they're tough and they stay on the board forever. Well, not forever, but yeah. And they're, you know, it's a small model count army. Uh, so, and, and there are models that, are relatively easy to paint. I mean, you can get really fancy into them and doing like lots of like metallic highlights and such, but they're a very quick army to just get the basics painted and, and have a a decent looking army. And if you don't mind digging into forge world, which if you've spent a small fortune, fortunately you can sell those armies that you don't like to people and then use that money to pour into forge world stuff. Cause they've got some really neat forge world models. Wait, wait, Um, you can sell armies. Supposedly. Um, that you've that done does it. Not compute. That does no, not compute. I know compute. you've done it because I know you sold some of it to me. So <laughs> I know, <laughs> and I sold some to you. I mean, it's it's all revenge. <laughs> but uh, yeah, is there a special currency for selling armies? I mean, is, uh, is no. Carl's only count Carl's? when you buy them. Carl's only count when you buy them uh, retail. Oh, okay. that's fair. Now I've learned something. <laughs> I know because I. I I spent over a Carl at the Warhammer uh, anniversary, like store anniversary this past weekend. <laughs> wow. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We're so, not yeah, here to shame. I, no, we're not here to shame. I don't think we, we all have problems. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So yeah, I'd say cus- custodes would be a pretty good one 
as far as you know friendly to you know friendly to play Mm -hmm. easy to remember the rules not a whole lot of moving parts to move around you know to run around with and uh, the other thing i would recommend is since it you seem like you're uninterested in tournament play which is fine tournament play is not for everybody you don't have you don't have to feel like i can only you should not have to feel like you can only game if you play tournament look into crusade rules because a lot of the, you know, as armies are getting new codexes, they're also all getting crusade specific rules. And while it can be like a lot of the crusade mission or like the agendas and the faction specific stuff can be a lot to remember. A lot of the stuff happens like after games. It's not rules that apply in game. It's things that you do between games and they tend to be more relaxed games because, you know, unless you have a, you're not playing like a tournament of crusade missions, you're playing like a crusade mission here and there. Uh, I'm assuming you're playing mostly with friends or at your local game store uh, because, you know, you're not doing tournaments. So uh, find something with crusade rules, find a faction whose lore appeals to you. Cause I think we're seeing more and more armies really leaning into their faction identity with the crusade rules. And I think that's, and what I've seen, I really like, so that might be something to, to go for, but yeah, otherwise, uh, yeah, space Marines, custodes, Tau, cause like Tau doesn't have a lot of rules right now to keep track of. So th- those would all be decent ones to start with. Custodes is probably the best one. If you want an army that is both simple to play and has the potential, ha- has a, better chance of winning in general because like space marines it gets really into the minutia of which chapter you want to play and then what arm what units you take for it but custodes you also have so few unit choices that it's really hard to mess up (laughs) all right next up we have yet another returning player uh danny flavin writes uh danny writes hey guys i just got started getting back into 40k after 12 years away from the hobby you're probably going to hate me but i have always preferred to play space marines particularly black templars dude yes rob hates black templars oh yeah no <laughs> i hate that just yeah no I, yeah that's why i played black templars for years the only reason i sold it off is because i wanted to make room for other things and i didn't sell it off i gave it away as our raffle army so i know it's in the hands of somebody else who's playing it so uh no you are totally fine liking black templars around here it says i'm in the process of selling my lesser used armies on ebay see kevin you can sell armies it is a thing i don't know this ebay doesn't i, I don't know what that is that doesn't make sense anyway <laughs> and i'm hoping to turn that around into a pretty decent new start of a space marine army i'm keeping all my old black templar stuff and the 50 or odd the 50 odd terminators i traded all my imperial guard for them a while back Having said that, I think I want to go with a more gunline or stealthy successor chapter. So many years of playing close combat crazed Templars, I want to try something different. Knowing all that, what do you think would be a good start to this army? I ordered the Start Collecting Space Marines box set, and I have the Command Edition starter set as well. I absolutely love the show. Makes it feel like I still have hobbyist friends to hang out with these times. Thanks, <laughs> Dan F. Well, thank you, Dan. Um, so... Uh, Good start. You want something stealthy or gunline. Um, if you're going stealthy, uh, Raven Guard are always good. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of their thing. And you can also always make a custom chapter that will incorporate bits of like Raven Guard esqueness. But as far as like what to buy, like if I was going to buy, and I'm assuming we're looking at uh, combat patrols, 
you know, like what would be a good start to the army? I mean, like the current combat patrols are all good pickups. Uh, and if you have the command edition, you'll already have some Primaris stuff. And command edition was yeah. the, that's the newest starter, it's the, right? Yeah. The, the command edition is five. It's like the big one intercessors. Yeah. It's the big ones. Five assault intercessors, three, uh, outrider bikes and, uh, the, captain with the the power sword and the shield yeah i would i would say looking at like a few other options you might take and this like i would look at picking up uh let's see you have the start the start collecting space marine box was basically the shadow spear stuff wasn't it yeah because that's all of the stealthy uh because it's infiltrators and incursors and uh the captain in in phobos armor or lieutenant in phobos armor so um, yeah. That's a really good start for a for a stealthy army. Yeah, I was gonna say there's no point in buying the combat patrol space marines then because that's <laughs> just the same stuff plus an impulsor. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, the thing I would think about picking up maybe would be Shrike. Yes, if you're gonna go, but then you're dedicated to Raven Guard. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're gonna go Raven Guard, I'd absolutely pick up Shrike. Yeah. If you're looking at other combat patrols to pick up, and you're wanting to go, this is assuming you want to go with the more stealthy, lighter, you know, art-type army. The Combat Patrol Space Wolves is actually really good for that because it includes the Invictus Warsuit, which also plays into that. And then it has um, the... Uh, oh, gosh, I forget what the name... They all, all the names for the Space Marine stuff are too similar. Reavers. Similar? Yeah. It has the, the Primaris Reavers, which are also, like, a good, light, lighter infantry army, or unit, and then... A unit of intercessors with guns, which are going to be good to back up everything else that you're doing. So even though it is the Combat Patrol Space Wolves, I think that kind of pairs nicely with the the start collecting box that includes all of the, you know, all of the stealthy stuff. Yeah. Um, another one you might look at picking up would be uh, the Combat uh, Combat Patrol Blood Angels, because other th- like... Mm-hmm. You can completely ignore the one sprue of like Blood Angels upgrades, you know, or like the couple of sprues of Blood Angels upgrades, but it's got a unit of it's got an impulsor, which is a good transport for that army. Uh, five mm-hmm. incursors, which can also be infiltrators. Five intercessors, which gives you more shooting. Um, three aggressors, which is also if you want to have something that's a bit more shooty and kind of plodding forward and and firing to back up your stealthy stuff. That's also a good one. And it has a librarian, which there are some, you know, pretty good psychic powers that you can be throwing around as well. Any of those would be good starting points. Um, but yeah, I would definitely look at, at going into Raven guard. If you're wanting something, um, stealthy, uh, gun line, you know, Marines, I don't know if they actually like without getting into like some of the tanks, I don't know if they currently have like, a gunliney option. So ultramarines are not terrible at gunline because they have some of that tactical flexibility. So if you mm-hmm. were to say pick up the combat patrol death watch, which kind of doubles down on aggressors and intercessors, you know, just regular gun intercessors, you would then compare that with what you have in the other boxes, and you have a good kind of mixed infantry. You've got a couple units early at shooting. You've got some some uh, close combat units. That Ultramarines would provide some really good flexibility there to allow you to kind of slip between the doctrines and, um, you know, just a ton of flexibility. Also, I would say that if you're going to go just like 
pure bolter gun line, probably Imperial Fists or um, what's the what's the Imperial Fists other successor chapter that's not oh Crimson Fists what? Crimson Fists. Thank you. Like, but either one of those would probably be good because Bolter Drill is really good. Again, you can also go in and use custom t- uh, custom tactics and you know take half of Bolter Drill and you know and what and a you know you could basically take the Bolter Drill and then the 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 Raven Guard stealthy one and kind of mix and match a little bit. So I think there's definitely some several different ways you can take it. I think it just depends on how how you want to go and what you would like to what you'd like to build. The one thing that I really do like about the combat patrols for Space Marines and and you know we've talked about this before all of the ones they have created are just different enough that if you buy multiples, you're not really overlapping on things. Like you're getting different things. So if you want like the Invictus War Suit, the Space Wolves one is really good. If you want an extra transport, the Blood Angels is really good. If you want just extra characters and infantry, the Death Watch one is pretty good. So they they've provided a really good like variety of those start collecting boxes, and they're all our combat patrol boxes, and they're they're all good values. Yeah, absolutely, and and they lean into different flavors and and things you want to do. Of uh, you know, I think I think they did do a good job of having like n- you know having all these space marine boxes not feel samey, even though the components aren't that wildly different between them. The the other thing that I would mention, and I and I want to just this may or may not be a you know d- positive or negative. It just depends on on you personally. If you've been working on Black Templars for you know, 12 years, you've been painting black and white a lot. <laughs> if you go Raven Guard or if you go Iron Hands, you're going to be painting black and white a lot. So if you decide to get, that you want to, that you like that color scheme and you've got it nailed down and you don't mind doing it, continue on and those are, you know, those are both good options. If you want to do something completely different, Iron Hands or... Um, <coughs> no, Iron Hands Imperial is all black Fist. and white. <laughs> I was going to say Iron Hands Imperial is more black Imperial and white. Imperial Fist, sorry. No, it... Imperial fists, um, Imperial fists, which are yellow, uh, ultramarines, you know, blue, give you a completely different challenge paint-wise. I don't know if that's something that interests you. Interests you? I know uh, some people like variety. Some people like that they have a paint scheme down and they want to just be able to reuse it. So that's the only other thing I would kind of toss in that, depending on where where you stand on the painting spectrum with that, that may or may not. Some of those factions may or may not appeal to you. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And also, remember, you can always play a successor of the Raven Guard mm-hmm. and not and use like all the strats and rules. You wouldn't have access to Shrike because you wouldn't have the right keyword. But uh, you could basically play not Raven Guard, Raven Guard, and that's totally yeah. fine. And I think yeah, they have a number of successors listed. Uh, you will want to pick up the Raven Guard uh, Codex Supplement, which is a separate book. But you'd have to buy like Faith and Fury to get the uh, Black Templars special stuff. So I mean that's just a thing you do. Um, yeah, yeah. But just be aware of that. Like if you if if you want to play Raven Guard, but yeah, you're tired of pl- painting black and white. There there are plenty of options to let you play that. Or like I said, build a custom successor chapter that uses a little bit of like some elements of stealthy gameplay, but mixes it with something different and and have fun yeah. with it. You know, just find out what appeals to you and go with it. Uh, let's see another letter from uh, this is not from a returning player. So we're uh, this is a letter from Chad Allen Nichols. Chad writes, hi, guys. I was listening to you discussing the GW events this year, specifically the overlap with other events. You sounded like you think the overlap is accidental. What gives that impression? 
I expect it's completely deliberate, considering how adamant GW is regarding their game. I submit for your consideration that GW fully intends to corner the market on all Warhammer events. I understand that this isn't something that can be discussed on your podcast, but think about it. Anyway, keep up the good work. So, um, that is, so, so GW, if you're listening, that is from Chad Allen Nichols. He's in on the, con- he, he understands the conspiracy now. <laughs> He's in on the fix. He's in on it. Ch- um. That's Chad Allen Nichols. You can find him at, no, 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 this is absolutely something we can talk about on the podcast. Yeah. I am totally fine with discussing this because while GW sends us, uh, preview material, they are not our bosses and we can totally discuss this. And so, I understand where this is coming from, and I, and I I do get what he's saying about like GW is very protective and adamant, you know, about how their game is handled, and we've seen that before in you know some of the days of of bad guy GW like being mm. very overzealous with uh, you know going after people legally, and and as a company they do have to protect their IP. That is that is one of their things, and they do have some restrictions on what can be used at official uh, get, like games workshop events. Like if you were playing a game at a games workshop store, or if you were playing in a tournament at like Warhammer world, whenever they're allowed to do that again, that, you know, you would have to follow, like I can't take my sister's army up there because even though my sister's army is old GW metal models with no conversions whatsoever, they're on third party resin bases, which is not allowed under, you know, games workshops event rules. So, uh, that's a thing that I'm not a fan of, but it's events. It's one of those things like it's an event in their space that they're controlling. They have the right to run it the way they want. I mean, any independent GT could also put that same rule out there. Well, it's, it, it goes back to the thing we always say, like whenever we're giving tournament advice or rules advice, check the TO because the TO is running the event. If the T, if an independent event, if frontline gaming decided for LVO that no third party models that they can enforce that at their event. That's within their rules. That's within their power. Yeah. Now, as to the bigger issue, the idea that GW is intentionally gunning for overlap, you know, gunning for local events by overlapping them and trying to draw people away from them. Um, I, d- I don't want to sound completely dismissive of of this idea because I could easily see how it could come across that way. And I don't want to seem like I'm just saying, oh, that's a stupid idea. I will say... I don't think it's likely, especially for North American events, and that's because GW has been working very hard to build up good rapport with the people who are currently running U.S. events. Like, they, yeah. they've gone out of their way to partner with them rather than try to override them. And I think case in point, the fact that they are, they specified on the announcements for the, these events, these events are eligible for ITC points. They're not doing, I mean, other than this particular little set of four tournaments that roll, that kind of play into each other, they're not making an attempt to take over the larger 40k independent tournament circuit. Right. Uh, and the dates totally avoided the, the big hitters of LVO, Adepticon. Nova Open. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and with, like, Mike Brandt being, you know, like, formerly running Nova Open and now basically being GW's, like, North American Events coordinator, 
he could totally just decide, yeah, I'm going to make Nova open like the official like GW games day put and then reschedule it to conflict with like, yeah, like LVO or it's like, yeah, you could do that. It'd be a real dick move and everyone would see what you were doing. But also the fact that like, I don't think they have any interest in doing that. Yeah. I mean, so this is, this is why I, I personally don't think they're doing this. So a, as we mentioned at the time, there is a ton of events it overlaps going to happen. It sucks that they, that two of them overlap with events that we are personally connected to, but also the events that we're personally connected to are like 700 miles away from the events that GW is holding. So it's not really stealing players from local events. You know, I, I get that big name players are going to travel to them because they're going to travel to those events, but it's no different than Nova open or LVO holding events the same weekend as your local GT. Like, it, it, it's it's unavoidable. There's only so many weekends in a year. But the other reason why I don't think that GW wants to do this is I, I think about where I live right now. I live in Phoenix. There are three GW stores within 30 minutes and another one about an hour away in Tucson. Between those four stores, they have a total of eight to ten employees. Okay, like very small, like staff, like they're the event spaces and the store retail stores are not big enough to hold events. They are not staffed to be able to run events. So if GW wanted to take over the tournament scene, they would definitely want to have an event in Phoenix. Like you would you would think that you would want to regularly be holding events in the fifth largest city in the country to do that and to run it with GW staff means they would have to close four stores for an entire weekend multiple weekends a year that's a terrible business they're decision gonna, they're not going to do that that is they're not going to do that that is yeah that is unreasonable like i the way they are set up in north america at least they are not in a position to take over running events because they just do not have the staff so yeah. i don't think there's any risk of them trying to take over the the tournament scene oh yeah one you look at kansas city which until recently had two and will again have two gt level events and then the nearest, like, then you've got Omaha, Wichita, uh, events out in Columbia, events out in, in St. Louis. Kansas City has a GW store. St. Louis has a GW store. I don't think Wichita has one. I don't know if Omaha has one. But, I mean, you're talking about an area that, if you were going off of GW presence, is woefully underserved. And that's where, like, the independent stores where actual, like, uh, like RTTs are being run by people who are not employed in any way by, by Games Workshop. And these large events are all, like, pretty much volunteer basis. Like, you don't get in, you honestly don't get into the uh, convention game to make a lot of money. I'll just put that right there right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we barely broke even on... Midwest Conquest. I mean, I'll just be absolutely honest about this. We barely broke even. We went like we did a little bit better, but that was also with the fact that we had an extremely sweet, unusual deal on space. If we'd had to get space like most conventions, it'd be a losing. We'd be losing money yeah. on it every year. And I know events like uh, LVO, they have to like you know they have to get event space because they take over like all of Bally's convention space. For a weekend and actually you know you figure they're there probably a couple you know a few days beforehand to get set up so figure they're taking up that convention space for like a week 
that's something you have to line up a couple of years in advance. So GW coming in, throwing, you know, to be fair, throwing some corporate money and being able to get space in three particular cities, which are all in the southern part of the U.S., which means they're not easily accessible to a lot of people, you know, unless you want to fly or do long road trips. These events are going to cap out at 256 people, which, while it makes them some of the larger events, it's not even close to, like, LVO, I think they're... Their championships just sold out this weekend, and mm-hmm. they're over 750 players. Oh LVO is not is not threatened by this at all, right? <laughs> well, Adepticon is not too, threatened by this. It's it's the volume that if, if they really wanted to disrupt and take over the tournament scene, it's not just the big events; it's the volume, and they just do not have the volume. Like, yeah, again, like let's say in to take over the tournament space in Phoenix or Kansas City you'd have to run at least a quarterly event, like a quarterly GT. And again, that means that you're shutting down three or four stores in your area for an entire weekend, three or four times a year, losing out on all of the launch day sales and weekend sales that you normally get. Like, I don't think GW wants to be involved in this to that level, just because it doesn't make sense. Like, there's already a system that's running it and handling it well. They would rather just tie into that system and let that system do most of the work and then, you know, drop in their events where they want. Uh, And also I'd say that the skills that they're training their employees on, which is mostly managing, you know, single handedly or with one partner managing a retail space is not the same skill set as managing a multi-person, you know, as a managing a large tournament, you know, several times a year that it's, it'd be a whole new set of training or a whole new set of employees that they'd have to hire, Four of like a uh, four weekends a year, something like that. Um, yeah. Also, I think if I was going to go after an event, like the fact that yes, it in so like one of the events overlapped with Flying Monkey, and yeah, it sucks for the guys from Flying Monkey that there's an event in Orlando the same weekend. But again, the audience for those two doesn't necessarily completely overlap. It might somewhat. But I think there's going to be a lot of players who are going to be like, well, I'm not going to drive. I'm not going to travel all the way to Orlando to get to an event that's probably going to sell out like the day it becomes available. But I'll definitely go to Flying Monkey, which will have spots open for a longer period of time because it's just a it's smaller event. It's like it seems weird to, for them like to think Games Workshop is gunning for Flying Monkey by running an event over a thousand miles away that just happens to be the same weekend or gunning for renegade open, you know, in November, I think that's the one that's in Austin. Um, Correct. Yeah. It's like, they're not even near each other. And it seems like an odd target. If I was going to gun for an event, if I was going to put my mind in the place of, I want to try to, to run this event out of business, but I don't want to like, you don't want to look too obvious about it. So like I, you won't run one, Maybe run one in Minneapolis the week before or two weeks before where the people that would travel to that event now have to make a decision which one they're going to travel to. Do they travel to the official event or do they travel to the fan run event? Because if you put them a week apart, somebody might just take a long vacation. But if you put them two weeks apart, then suddenly somebody's you're going to have people are going to have to give up one or the other. And then it's just going to be local players that might attend both, which is going to cut down 
the attendance for the fan run one because people will attend the official one instead two weeks before that. So like that's kind of the plan I would go for if I was going to try to corner the market on all Warhammer events. But also the fact that, I mean, Games Workshop's never tried to corner the market on all all Warhammer events. They never have. Even back in the days of bad guy GW, they didn't, it wasn't what they wanted to do. And now they, and they definitely don't now because they're, Right now, they're building their brand around having a good rep, good relationship with their players and with tor- tournament organizers. And if you start being actively bad, players notice and it'll turn people off. And especially if like they start making like if they go after like frontline gaming's events by like I'm going to we're going to schedule an event during Bay Area Open and SoCal and Las Vegas Open and stuff like that. Yeah, they're going to run afoul of the Frontline Gaming Group, and Frontline Gaming's got a lot of pull. Does that necessarily mean that, you know, Frontline Gaming pulls out of the event circuit? No, but it does mean that they're not going to really be all that friendly towards GW after that. Maybe they'll start, you know, not pushing the championship as hard and pushing uh, Star Wars Legion harder, pushing X-Wing harder, pushing... You know, they've got LVO has a lot of different games covered, so they wouldn't necessarily have to put all their their eggs. I mean, they don't put all their eggs in the 40K basket now. There's nothing saying that they would continue to have, you know, they they would continue to try. And also the fact that, like, we've interviewed Reese Robbins after he went to Nottingham to talk to GW. And, you know, they wanted to talk to him about, like, the whole tournament circuit thing. So... I don't think, like, I really don't think they would invite him over there and then help out at his event with the in, the goal of pushing him out of the space. I, I just don't see GW doing that. Like, I again, I understand where the, where this thinking comes from, and we've been burned enough by GW to to understand, you know, in the past to understand like why one might feel this way. But I I just don't see that being the case this time around. I think yeah, and I really do think it is a matter of it's a coincidence and there's only 52 weekends in a year and you got to get the, the hotel space the time you can. But also, as I said last episode, I think there are things GW can do to make it up to the events that they might be conflicting with. And GW has got the pockets to be able to help out. So I think that would be good. And and my thoughts on this is I, I will admit it was a surprise to have them announce they were getting back into the tournament scene. And I think it might be good for like, just a few tournaments, but I personally think this was to build up hype for the Los Angeles um, Citadel. And oh, yeah, I, I think, and I think that's the main draw. It's like, Hey, let's get everyone. And then we can have this big celebration at the Los Angeles Citadel. And this is the best way to do it is showcase, have some tournaments, bring the, the best players from each one there. Cause there's only six players from Sigmar and six people from 40 K who are going to be playing at that final so, and then I'm thinking just something happened in Los Angeles, maybe the laws or the rules where they couldn't have the gathering they wanted. So that's why it got diverted to Grapevine, which I'm not going to complain about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is like, yeah, that, you know, the, the six people at the end there is like, if you were going to do a huge event where you take over the tournament space, that's not how I'd do it. I would do it more the LVO style where I'd make. I'd run three big events and then the hugest event of all. And and that's not what they're doing. They're doing just kind of a open tournament circuit thing, like a little mini circuit, and then just calling it good. And yeah. 
They said they'll do a European one eventually, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be a ton of independent European events either. So, and, and GW, since we know you listen to the podcast, please like do not take our ideas and try to like take over the tournament scene. Like, yeah, no, really no, no, don't. Pre- no, I if was. You, if you I wasn't do that, trying to offer... if you do that, contact us and like get us involved in it. Because while we are independent right now and we don't like kowtow to you, like I can be bought. We do have a price. <laughs> <laughs> we have a price. I mean, with you guys teasingly saying that, I'll also say that it is better to have both because anytime you get yeah. more saturation, you'll drum up more interest. Yeah, absolutely. But and GW has the ability to market these events in a way that other you know that other events don't. So again, as we talked about last time, if they were to partner with these events that they're overlapping with and also promote them, I think that would be, it would go a long way towards any hurt feelings that, that are happening here. But like, yeah, like having these large anchor events is really good. And I think having more of them is fine, but it's not going to replace, you know, the, the smaller quote unquote GT tournaments that like we run with like 80 people. It's, you can have both. Mm, Absolutely. And remember, if it all goes sideways, we can blame Chad, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. No. Just want to make sure. <laughs> and then our final letter is from Tom Crisp. And Tom wanted to follow up on our previous episode as well. Tom writes, Greetings, preferred enemies. Having just listened to your Adeptus Mechanicus Codex coverage, I just wanted to highlight a few nuggets that might have slipped your attention. It's a crazy complex book, so no surprise. I fear for explaining your list to, the turn- to your tournament opponent. <laughs> so a few things I noticed that might be of interest. The Forge World-specific Warlord traits have some real gems. I'm looking at you, Lucius, with the effective transhuman, you know, transhuman physiology for a turn, and Stygius for Deceiver Satan-style shenanigans, which... So, yeah, first of all, we did not get heavily into Warlord traits, because there's only so much time to try to cover the book. Also, we had just received the book like a day or so before, so I, I will definitely cop to we rushed through a number of things just to get it down to the length of episode we already had it down to right well and and then also none of us you know admittedly none of us play the army so there are going to be things that people who do play the army think of that we just won't (laughs) right yeah so like lucius is in your command phase you select a lucius core unit within nine inches of your warlord until the next phase or until yeah until the next command phase uh any attacks against that unit only wound on four up I mean, that, yeah, that's that's a good one for making a nice, you know, a, a briefly tough unit and like holding an objective or something like that. And then Stygius, yeah, you get to remove some units and redeploy them. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's some definitely some cool things to, to have there. And it is one of the reasons why, you know, there are viable builds outside of Mars. Mars just gets all the benefits all the time, which does make and gets free rerolls, which is just always an attractive combination. He continues, uh, you mentioned the ca- about Catafrons not being able to do most actions, which is technically true unless you have a techno-archaeologist who makes them act as infantry for the purposes of actions and lets them shoot as well. Which we did mention the tar- techno-archaeologist having that ability and, you know, then mentioning that, yeah, they're not infantry, they're bikers. And yes, if you have those two, you can still perform actions with them. It, but it is one of those things where it's like, yeah, you have to babysit the Catafrons with this character to let them do a thing. And a lot of actions require you to move around the board or deep strike into places and do them in different spots. So, um, like, the Cataphrons aren't the most flexible unit to do it with. And if you have to babysit them with someone, 
it's harder, but it is nice that you can still, there are ways to make it work. Mm -hmm. Uh, He continues, the holy orders, I'd agree, are a bit complex, and it's tough to want to swap to the advanced parts. However, the Logi ignore AP 1 and 2 on core units for a turn, and artisans allow core or cataphrons to fall back and shoot. Initial parts are likely worth it just for those abilities in your back pocket. Uh, Yeah, that's true. I just, like, anytime I look at one of these kinds of abilities, and we're going to get into a little bit of that in the Sisters Codex when we get to it, is that anytime you've got these abilities where there's, like, a two-step ability where you have to do a thing and then do, like, you have an ability and then you do another thing to trigger the ability, I think for me, it, like, it, I have, I start looking at it from the point of, is this worth it? in total like does this entire package make sense and i guess if you do look at it just from the sense of like the initial part abilities where they're just always on bonuses or abilities that you can dole out in your command phase and you don't have to have anything special to do it i guess that yeah if you look at it and from that viewpoint it's gonna be a different take whereas i was like looking at from the sense of yeah, these advanced parts don't have anything to do with the initial parts in many cases. And so it just, as a, I was, I guess, judging them more for kind of a rules aesthetic. Like, does this make sense? Do these rules build on each other? And I think with a lot of the Holy Orders, the answer is no. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily bad choices to to take. Uh, So fun fact, I got to play against a Mechanicus player yesterday. So I've been alluding to this a bit i actually got to play in my first three round tournament in over well over a year uh yesterday and my second round i actually got to play with a mechanicus player who was using the brand new codex and yeah he had i think he had an artisans a logi and a genitors like he had characters of each and yeah he was hand doling out the bonuses from them like every turn and really only leaning into the initial part he never used the action to activate the progressive abilities as far as i remember so it's definitely a thing you can do to uh, to, to provide some buffs. Uh, yeah, we just didn't get into that because I just looked at it and was like, oh, gosh, this entire system is way more complex than it needs to be. But it does mean I kind of glossed over it. Iron Starter Balistari have the core keyword. This allows so many buffs to be applied to them, it makes them arguably one of the best units in the book. Uh, completely agree. They were, they're already good. Having data tether built in is great. Uh, their weapon choices are good. They're a fast, mobile, uh, very shooty platform. And having core as well just lets them benefit from so much. So definitely good there. Also, one for the FAQ watch. As it stands, Taraxi can drop in, do their turn, and fly away at the end of turn using booster thrust. We'll have to wait and see if this gets changed, but it's definitely something to bear in mind if you see them on the table. So uh, the booster thrust ability reads as follows. Booster thrust. Use the stratagem at the end of your turn. Select one Taraxi unit from your army. Remove that unit from the battlefield. In the reinforcement step of your next movement phase, you can set that unit back up on the battlefield anywhere that is more than nine inches away from any enemy models. If the battle ends and that unit is not on the battlefield, it is destroyed. So the idea being that they can arrive during your movement phase, do their thing, and then at the end of your turn, pull them off. There wasn't any FAQs for AdMech in the last round, so I imagine... Well, it's also if brand any, new, so yeah, it'll be right, a little bit. Yeah. So there, but there wasn't any... You know, I did check, and there wasn't any, any changes to any of that in the, the last round of FAQs. Under the Rare Rules and uh, rare rules Repositioned and Replacement Units in the rulebook, they did actually add a line 
So, so like, re- there's a whole box of re- reposition replacement units. You know, it talks about if the unit was performing an action that I, that action immediately fails, they added a new bullet point, bullet point 10. Such rules can, if they occur in the movement phase, be used on units that arrived as reinforcements this phase and or units that have already been selected to move this phase. So, yes, a unit could arrive in the movement phase and then you even inside the movement phase you could use a rule on it to remove it and replace it so there's nothing saying at the end of turn you couldn't remove taraxi with booster thrust so they could absolutely do their thing drop down and then fly away if you have the cp for it so i think the rules would absolutely support that so i I doubt that'll get faq'd also it's not like the taraxi are so amazingly amazing that it's going to be really game breaking they're okay they're good Mm -hmm. He says, sorry for the long message, just wanted to highlight some of the fun things you can do with this book. It's not as obviously powerful as some of the other 9th edition codexes, <clears throat> but I think once people find their f- feet with it, it'll be very strong. Keep up the great work. Glory to the Omnissiah, Tom. So yeah, I, the, the book is, it is a very rules complex book, and we mentioned that, like, trying to keep track of what units have what bonuses and are providing bonuses to what other things and what units are affected by these rules and that rules, which is why we said this is not a good first army to play. But, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of things that can be missed going, you know, even just like a, a fast cursory review like we did. But yeah, thanks, thanks Vaughn, for uh, pointing out some of those things so that any aspiring, uh, tech priests out there might uh, want, you know, want to figure out how to reconfigure their armies appropriately or, you know, tricks that they maybe hadn't considered. And if you have uh, something we haven't considered or something you'd like to have us read on the air, whether it be a question, a commentary, a suggestion, or a list to review, uh, there's three good ways to do that. First off is you can email us. Our email addresses are our first names at preferred enemies. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferred enemies.com. Uh, second is Facebook. We are facebook.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, and you can like us there, follow us and, uh, keep up to date on things we're doing, our takes on news and, and new releases, things like that. Third is on Twitter. We are twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular. And we take comments and letters from all of those three sections, throw them in the hopper and get through as many as we can in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, as of right now, the hopper is once again empty. So if you want to get your letter read on the air next episode, now's the time to get it in. Uh, also, we do have a Patreon. Uh, that's basically we use it as our online tip jar to help support the show, pay for web hosting for all our episodes, uh, keep our equipment up and running and working for everybody, especially as we do things more and more remotely. And uh, also, as events are now opening up, we use, we will be using those to uh, help fund the travel to get us to those events. It is, and I said, it's an online tip jar. We don't lock any content behind a paywall. Every episode is available to everyone. Uh, but if you want to help support the show, if you have the money to do that first, find local charities that you can donate to, uh, you know, helping the homeless uh, providing food, especially for people who are having trouble finding work or having trouble, uh, finding uh like paying for rent things like that uh help people out if you can because we all just love it when people use wargaming powers for awesome but if after that you want to help support us just go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies uh support us if you can even if it's just a dollar a month enough people put in a dollar it adds up and it helps out so we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification and when we come back we'll be looking at the brand new codex adeptus oritas see you in a bit Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. 
That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Care Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. And that means it's time to dig into our main topic, which is our look at the brand new Codex Adeptus Sororitas. Again, in the interest of full disclosure, this preview copy was provided to us by Games Workshop in exchange for a fair look and review. So we're going to say what we think about the book and not what we've been told to say about the book. Because they didn't tell us to say anything about the book, because that's just not how they rolled. So, uh, first off, a little bit of background on the Adeptus Sororitas, or as they're also known, the Sisters of Battle. They are the militant arm of the Ecclesiarchy, the imperial cult that worships the Emperor. Hashtag Lorgar was right all along. And, uh, I mean, he was. <laughs> I mean, I mean, from a certain point of view, yeah. No, there's no certain point of view on it. You know, he's... Like I've read the I mean, first if you heretic. Believe, if you believe that the emperor is like a you know heretic and there's a false emperor, then yeah, then you're you're then you don't believe that. Then Lorgar was no, right. No, what? <laughs> <laughs> but if but the thing is, it's like they actually they worship the emperor and he grants miracles or something's granting miracles. So apparently Lorgar was right. Uh, but anyway, so so it's the militant arm of the ecclesiarchy, the imperial church. And you'll notice that with the exception of, like, priests and missionaries, everyone in this army is a woman. And there's a reason for that. When the, when the Adeptus Ruritas was first formed, this was, uh, in the aftermath of the, uh, rebellion of the Ecclesiarch Gojvandir. And this is, like, way back in Imperial history. He basically tried to usurp the, uh, the rule of the High Lords of Terra. 
And it was his closest female advisors that decided to strike him down in the name of the emperor. And so afterwards, the uh, the rule was was made that the ecclesiarchy should have no men uh, no men at arms. And in fine religious tradition, they found a loophole. <laughs> And they're sticking with it. And that loophole is, you said no men at arms, so they're going to go with the Aowen defense and say, but I am not a man. But I am no man, yeah. (laughs) And so they're going to, they they armed all the women. And it's worked pretty well so far. And so, yes, this is, it, you know, you'll sometimes see people refer to the Sisters of Battle as nuns with guns. And it's an appropriate nickname because that's a mm-hmm. basically what they are. They're, they're a set of holy orders that are ranged like abbeys with canonesses and sister superior. And they're all sisters the way nuns are, but they're also are all armed with either bolters, flamers or meltaguns because just like in another church we could mention, there's a holy trinity, except in this case, it's the bolter, the melta and the holy prometheum. And amen. all the, amen, and all the better to put down the, the witch, the heretic, the mutant, and the xeno. So yes, they, they do have access to power armor, although they are not superhuman the way that uh, space marines are. So basically you're looking at human stats, but with better armor and weapons that are comparable to what space marines wield. So a sister of battle is more ca- combat capable than an equivalent guardsman, but that's because her equipment is better. Mm-hmm. And they also have the benefit of faith, and that's one of the big things about the the Sisters of Battle, is that they believe very fervently in the holiness and power of the God Emperor. And whereas, like, Space Marines, for example, most Space Marine chapters, with a couple of exceptions, don't consider the Emperor to be a god. They think, like, he's superhuman, you know, and we are his sons, like he genetically crafted us, but he's just like a super powerful psychic dude who's strapped in a chair and dying or dead, right. but still alive. You know, it's like, and they're like, Bobby G's talked with him. We know he's real. We know his spirit's still alive, but still just a powerful psyker dude to the sisters of battle, to the Adeptus Oritas. He is God. And his good works grant miracles to them. And so they sometimes have these amazing feats in in battle that are actually fueled by their faith. And you actually saw a little bit of that in the trailer for Ninth Edition when you had the Sister of Battle fighting uh, man, Necrons. And, like, her arm was kind of messed up by, like, Goss fire. And she gets into a cathedral and prays and her arm heals up. So there's something there. That is actually like honestly manifesting. It's there. Sounds like chaos to me. It did kind. You know, it sounds like <laughs> witchery and chaos, but it is apparently absolutely not. And in fact, there are numbers among the uh, the sisters that are referred to as living saints because they can pull off repeated miracles, including in some cases death and rebirth. And uh, there's a couple of such saints in this book. Uh, also, the high lords of Terra have named a new leader of the ecclesiarchy named Morvan Vall, and we'll be uh, getting into her stats in a bit because they've made her playable. She's actually the youngest high abbess of the Adeptus Oritas, and she likes to mix it up in the field. They, you know, they've, got, they've added some new characters or, and some characters that were brought in from uh, the Psychic Awakening books as well. Mm-hmm. 
there's a number of uh, holy orders. So, for example, there's the Order of Our Martyred Lady, which is like one of the original orders. And, and each one kind of, like, they have a different aspect in their worship. Order of Our Martyred Lady focuses on the sacrifice that are uh, sacrifices that have been made to preserve and protect the empire. Uh, the Order of the Valorous Heart is about uh, suffering for good, you know, suffering for the empire. The uh, Order of the Bloody Rose is all about the god emperor's wrath and delivering it to his foes. Uh, Eben Chalice is all about the the perfect worship. Uh, the Ar- or- Order of the Argent Shroud is about striking first at the enemies and the Emperor. And then Sacred Rose is about light and holy serenity. So it's like there's all the like different aspects of the church are embodied in these various orders, which is basically their equivalency of chapters. Mm-hmm. And they also talk about various minor orders. And yes, we have rules for creating those. So it's like you're... There's a wide variety of abbeys and orders out there, so if you don't like one of these, feel free to roll your own with its own color schemes. And there's also, like, non-militants. There are sisters who do not fight because they are trained to be healers and diplomat. The order's hospitaler, the order's dialogus, and we'll be talking about some of them as well later. And so that's that's part of it. And then also the ecclesiarchy is in charge of delivering the uh, the judgment of the holy judgment of the emperor as well. So they tend to manage the punishment of sinners, which usually ends up involving them being either surgically modified or strapped into suits and sent to die, which is fun, you know, like you do. And, and their own members are not immune from this. If you are a sister who has fallen from grace through, you know, not having enough faith or, failing in a in a key moment and bringing shame upon your order um they'll basically strip you of your power armor give you a a big old chain sword and say run at that thing until you're dead and that's how you'll do your penance and yeah they're big on penance and punishment and using that to inflict damage upon the enemy so nothing is truly wasted in the eyes of the church in this case <laughs> I mean, it, it wouldn't be grim dark if we couldn't strap naked people to the front of torture machines and send them to fight, right? Exactly. <clears throat> These are the good guys. I just want to. I just want to add that. These are the good guys. Again, from a certain point of view. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> sounds kind of dark eldery to me. I'm going to go with a certain point of view on that. Certain because, point of like, view. my world, my world eaters think they're also the good guys too, and this they is, do yeah. a lot of the same, and they do a lot of the same things you're describing. So. Eh, Potato, potato. <laughs> yeah, isn't it, it? Isn't it true? Like the villain is just the hero of their own story. Exactly. But no, sisters do have really cool. Have a really cool, like unique place in the world, which I, I think yes, is they do. one of the things that definitely draws. It's one of the things that honestly kept them alive through like that dark decade when they didn't get new models or any new codexes. the The appeal of what this force is in 40k is very unique and very attractive to certain people. So, yeah. And it's also one of the only armies in this entire game that is, I can't say 100% because there are male missionaries and, and such, but that is almost completely female. And so it's one of the few like female-centric model lines they have. Mm-hmm. And they've tried to do what they can to not like over-sexualize them. 
how successful they've been at that. I mean, they're still wearing boob armor with the, you know, big flirtily, you know, breast covers sometimes. They have toned down on the uh, Sisters Repentia because Sisters Repentia used to basically be naked except for like uh, purity seals. But now right. they're <laughs> actually wearing like the body glove that they would wear under their power armor. So, you know, they've kind of toned that down a bit. Also, it's a line that, as you said, they, there was a long period, basically from about, I think they stopped making new models for them in third edition. And because yeah. they made some yeah. in second edition and a lot of the sculpts, the metal sculpts we have date back to second edition. Like the, they were the last codex to come out in second edition. And that's often been a trend <laughs> that they're one of the last yeah. codexes for an edition. So 10th edition's confirmed like by in fall is what you're saying. <laughs> It is odd that we got this codex relatively early in in the edition. Like the edition is just now hitting a year old, and there's a lot of factions that absolutely need love. Sisters were actually competitively doing okay, so it wasn't like they were an underpowered faction. But they had new models. Yeah, that's they, yeah. It really comes down to a model release more than anything. Well, that's that's the big thing, and and. Because I remember when when you and I did the eighth edition codex review, you know, when we were able to get the the launch box and and went through everything, we talked then that this is, was a very like thin army that like they didn't have like they'd gotten a lot of new units, they'd gotten a lot of new things, but they still didn't feel as robust as some of these other armies. And I think this kind of slots in kind of nicely with the Mechanicus release that we just got, where it's like, yeah, this army probably didn't need a codex. But this allows us to flesh it out 10 to 15% more, you know, and, and make the army feel more fuller. Because as we mentioned, like previous codexes didn't have any of the minor order orders in it, didn't have, you know, all of these units that, that are new and, you know, coming out with new models. So like, I still feel like this isn't a complete codex because I think there's still a few things I would probably add, but it feels like this is much closer to a full codex than like what we got in eighth edition. What we had in eighth edition was fine. It's just, this feels, you know, just that much more fleshed out. I, I won't disagree with that. I won't disagree with that. I think they, they filled in a number of slots. They added a bit more variety and I think they've kind of, you know, they've patched up a couple of holes that the army did have. And I don't think you necessarily want to fill out every hole because the army's got to have some things that it's lacking. You've, you've got to have that balance there. Yeah. I mean, I think we mentioned this when we did the last review as well. The biggest thing for me is they only have one troop choice and like being able to add in as, as I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was the, the basically Imperial cultists. Um, yeah. The military, oh God, what were they called? Military for terrorists. Uh, for terrorists, yeah. Being able to add in, like, Imperial cultists as, like, a cheap troop choice and do the same thing that you do with, like, Poxwalkers in the Death Guard Codex where you can take a unit or maybe two and then that's it would have made this army, I think, feel a lot more fleshed out and, like, a little more – just a little bit more. I don't know. It's – that's one gripe that I have, but that's that's a gripe with any army that only has one troop choice. <laughs> I, I don't think you're necessarily wrong, and it, it wouldn't be unprecedented because they had the the Frateris in uh, the the original Sisters of Battle Codex, so mm. it wouldn't necessarily be out of place. But also, I I can see why like they wanted to have the flavor of this kind of lockdown. They haven't really had the yeah. Frateris represented rule wise since since Second Edition because the Third Edition Codex pretty much dropped them. 
in exchange for like have well even the second edition codex had this a little bit of having allies and so now i think the sisters army is is definitely fleshed out enough that you don't need them anymore and so yeah i, I just kind of yeah I don't know. I just would like to have another troop choice. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it. But also, but, yeah. I think um, they've made the the Battle Sisters troop choice pretty flexible, and we'll get to that when we, when we get mm-hmm. there. I would also like to celebrate the fact that they this is the first time that a Sisters <laughs> Codex has come out where they didn't completely overhaul the faith system. <sighs> yeah. Because like- that has been that has been a try. There's been a, some, a few tweaks, but primarily it works the same way it did in the last codex. And this is very much a case of if it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I know that makes you happy. It yes. does make me happy because because <laughs> there used to be a bad history of every alternating system was terrible. Like it'd be really good, then really bad, then good, then bad, and then they finally landed on something that was good last edition and I can happily report that they've maintained it for the most part. Like I said, a couple of small mm. tweaks. So what, before we get too much further in, let's just start talking about rules. As we mentioned, the, the sisters of battle, their big thing is faith and the acts of faith system is a huge part of how this entire army functions and what gives it an edge. Uh, so we'll, we'll jump over to those, those rules in the data sheets real quick. I do want to cover the what is considered uh, their, what their detachment abilities are. So, for example, the Adeptosaurus detachment is the only one that includes models with the Adeptosaurus keyword, excluding models with Cult Imperialis, which is all your priests, Agent of the Imperium, which is going to be important for one data sheet in here, or Unaligned, <laughs> which is for fortifications. Um, Adeptosaurus detachments gain degree pa- uh, degree passive, which says you can only have one canonist and one missionary in a detachment. Like you can have up to two characters plus any named characters that don't also have those keywords. Also, you cannot include uh, more cult imperialist priest units in this detachment than there are Adeptosaurus characters units, because this is not the priests' show. This is the sisters' show. So <laughs> be aware of that. And then everybody gets an order conviction, which is, again, basically their chapter traits. Oh, and before actually, before we jump to the new rules, uh, there is a new combat patrol. It hasn't been officially announced yet or released, but they do mention it in here. And it is actually something that we had predicted that it probably would be when uh, combat patrols first started being discussed and released. Yeah, you were exactly correct. It's The combat patrol is... Uh very similar to what the launch box was. It includes a the canonists that came in the launch box, mono, and all of these models are monopose. Canonists, a 10-man uh, sister of battle unit, a four-person squad of Repentia, sister superior, a five-man squad of Zephram, three arcoflagellants, and a penitent engine. All right, penitent engine and a rhino. Yeah, the rhino is the addition. Yeah, the rhino is the addition um, over what was in the the box, and this is this is everything that was in the launch box, right? Or is there were there any units that weren't included? Nope, nothing got left out. This okay. is everything that was in the launch box plus a rhino. I will say this: it's really cool because I do think that like the the monopose, even though they're mon- all monopose, the sisters in this launch box are really dynamic and really cool and really interesting. So I'm glad that these models are getting reused. You know, same with the the Seraphim, like they're really dynamic. It's a cool canonist. Like these are all really good models. If you were unable to pick up the launch box back in twenty nineteen when it came out, was that 
was it 2019? Yeah. Or like it was December of 2019. Yeah. Because remember how I they just, said sisters were going to come out in 2019 and they made it just under the wire. Yeah. I just realized that like the last year and a half was like a black hole of time. So I'm like, wait a minute. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, so yeah. All so hail Grandfather Nurgle. Ch- <laughs> yeah. If you didn't get a chance to pick up the launch box, this is it basically. Um, and I, you know, it's a similar price point. I think the launch box was one like seventy or no, or I thought it was a little more than that because it had the because it had the codex and it had the cards and it had dice um, yeah, in it. So it yeah. had yeah, so it had a few extra. So like basically, you're you're effectively like the same price. It's really cool that they're reusing that they're reusing those sculpts because I I think things happen to be really cool, really interesting, really dynamic sculpts. As far as what the, what this box actually gets you, it is almost exactly in line with every other uh, start collecting box we, or combat patrol box we've seen. 530 points if you kit it out the way that everything's kitted out in the pictures because you can't you kit them to. out any other way. <laughs> it's 27 power level. It's 25 models. You get an HQ, a troop, two elites, a fast attack, a heavy support, and a transport. So you actually get a fair number of model of uh, separate units in this, and then technically the way the Sisters of Battle Squad is kitted out, you could very easily make it to five man units instead of one ten, but it, that's splitting hairs, right? But uh, yeah, the, we said it with the launch box. This is a good box. It gives you like kind of everything that you want. You've got your you've got your Sisters Squad. You've got a Canonist. You've got some melee units with the Repentia. You've got some fast units with the Seraphim. Penitent engines are always good. The Arcoflagellants are Arcoflagellants, but you know they're they're there. They're chaff for you know if, if you know for using in the army. Like and the the Rhino kit for the Sisters is really cool too because it's the it's the 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 old Rhino with an upgrade sprue that has really cool upgrades on it, like really cool bits and bobbles to make it you know a. a genuinely sisters looking model so yeah like i think this is a really good box i think this strikes kind of the sweet spot that we've been looking at with all these other combat patrols outside of adeptus mechanicus that <laughs> really gets you right around 500 points right around 20 to you know 25 to 30 power level and enough where you can pick this box up and play it against somebody else who also picks up another combat patrol and you have a pretty fair match the other thing that's nice about this, and you know, is you could, if you did pick up the launch box, or if you wanted to get multiple of these, you could. You're limited by like canonesses and how many you can take in a detachment, but you know, you're gonna need sisters, you're gonna need Repentia, you're gonna need Seraphim. Like, there's only gonna be a few models in this that you won't be able to use if you decide to double up. Yeah, I mean, you will be limited on on how the sisters are kitted out, and and have that losing that flexibility hurts a little bit. But yeah, otherwise, yeah. doubling up. And what it reminds me of, yeah, you know, it's not as flexible build wise as the Mechanicus one is. But again, even with the flexibility, the Mechanicus one still comes in way under points. But it reminds me of the new Space Marine uh, mm-hmm. Combat Patrol that uses the Shadow Spear models. Yes, and yeah, you know because it's much. those same you know it's the same idea of a well, relatively well-rounded thematic set of monopose models and then a transport. I think that's fine, and it's for a starting army, it's perfect. So yeah, I'm and really it, happy with this combat patrol. Yeah, and and I'll I'll say this like as far as the monopose models because we talked about this with you know the the Space Marine Combat Patrol, the the Chaos Marine Start Collecting Box. I happen to like these monopose models a lot better than any of the monopose models in either of those sets. So this is one where I'm like, I might pick one of these up eventually because I really like the 10 battle sisters that are in here. And I think they're unique and they're cool models. And 
yeah, like they, they stand out and they look, you know, they fit right in with the other models that you can build from the actual you know, full kit. So I, I really like this set. All right, so we're going to go ahead and jump ahead to page 90 because we want to talk about the key unit abilities uh, before we get into everything else. Because, again, like most armies, this is what sets the theme for what the army can do and how it works. So there's three three main abilities that are going to come up. Uh, first one is Shield of Faith, uh, which pretty much every sister's model has. And this gives you a six-up and vulnerable save which has been kind of a sister's thing for a long time. It's like you you can't bank on it, but man, it feels good when you make those saves. And then the other yeah. is the ability to deny, like every unit that has this has the ability to deny a psychic power as if they were a psyker. So like 24-inch bubble of deny. And they've updated this from the way it was in the, last co- in the previous codex. Because in the previous edition, this was all but useless. Because you rolled on a D6... And you, cause you denied on 1d6 instead of 2d6, and you still had to roll higher than what your opponent rolled. So you basically had to hope your opponent was casting a warp charge 5 and succeeded with exactly a 5. And then you had a 1 in 6 chance of canceling that one power. Not great. You really couldn't do it against much. Now they've changed it. So yes, you are denying on 1d6 still. However, as long as you roll a six or roll better than what they got on the psychic test. So kind of future proofing this for powers that pass on a four, then you pass the night of the witch test. So on it, like every unit on a, on a six can deny any psychic power. That's cool. That's actually functional. You, you're, it's yeah. worth it to try. Yes. Now, now it is. And there are some like actions I believe have four charge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can deny psychic action. So that's you know that's actually really cool. So I think this does gel better with the you know those psychic action abilities, and it's just a generally more useful version of this because it can actually succeed on mm-hmm. on anything, even like a super smite or something like that. You can you have a chance <laughs> to save. No, oh, and wouldn't that annoy somebody? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and that's what's great about it. Like that's. That's why that's why the shield of faith, like the invulnerable safe part of it, was always like useful, even though it wasn't like great. It's like, eh, six up, I'll roll it, see what happens. Maybe I'll maybe I'll save that last cannon to the face. This kind of gives you that same thing. You're not you can't rely on that deny the witch test, but yeah, you're gonna roll a six and you're gonna you're gonna ruin one person's day of trying to cast something. <laughs> and then the yeah. rest of the Thousand Sons army just smite you off the board, but still <laughs> it's gonna feel good when that one when that one comes up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wear me as a hat, will you, Mr. Grey Knight? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, a second ability that you will see on a few units, namely Sisters Repentia, Penitent Engines, basically anything that is being punished, is a Zealot. Each time a model in this unit makes a melee attack, you can reroll the hit roll if you charged or performed a heroic intervention, or you were charged. Basically, that charge, were charged, heroically intervened, you get to reroll mm. the hit roll. So you are encouraged with those units to just be constantly running at things until one of you is dead. And then the final one, and this is the big one, is the Acts of Faith system. So the Acts of Faith rule involves a thing called Miracle Dice. Basically, the way a Miracle Dice is, is anytime you are awarded a Miracle Die, you roll a D6. And whatever number that comes up on, you take that die and you set it aside. 
later on you can spend that die and basically say okay i would i need to roll a whatever kind of roll i will use this die instead so if you roll a 5 you may go i need i need to make sure i wound this guy i'm going to take that 5 now to to ver- you know make sure that i wound you or i need to make this save i'm gonna take this this uh six to get my shield of faith working i need to pass a morale test yeah if i rolled that's a morale test oh look i rolled this one miracle die earlier i will use that (laughs) now how do you get miracle dice well at the start of each battle round you gain one also there's a new restriction that is that's new to the ninth edition codex your entire army has to be Adeptus Sororitas, excluding Colt Imperialis, Agent of the Imperium, or Unaligned. So you cannot soup anything in. I used to run Sisters and Knights. I cannot do that if I want to use Acts of Faith now. Mm-hmm. It is your sisters only. So, so the sisters find the knight's lack of faith disturbing? Yes, indeed, they do. However, you can still use uh, Assassins because they're Agents of the Imperium. <laughs> And also Inquisitors, I think, would fall under that as well. So, like, if you like yes. it running Inquisitor Greyfax with uh, Sisters, that's still totally on board. So, yeah, at the beginning of each battle round, you gain a Miracle Die. And then at the end of a phase in which any of the following conditions were met, you gain a Miracle Die. An Adeptosaurus unit from your army destroys one or more enemy units, or any, any Adeptosaurus character units from your army are destroyed. The further, first one's referred to as Vengeance. The second one's referred to as Sacrifice. Um, there used to be two others. Uh, one of them was anytime, you, like, if you denied the witch, you got a Miracle Die. And if you made a morale check without using a Miracle Die, you could get a Miracle Die. Those two have been removed. I think the mor- morale one, because... The morale phase is, is different enough. It doesn't really do the same thing. And the psychic one, probably because Shield of Faith is so much better now, you don't want to necessarily be keying off of that and doubling yeah. up the, the benefit of it. So, But still, kill, destroying enemy units and losing characters, these can be happening on your turn, on your opponent's turn. It's end of any phase. So theoretically, you could get... Like, you'll get one at the beginning of the battle round. On your turn, you'll, you can probably get one from shooting. You can probably get one from assault, you know, from the fight phase. You might lose a character in the fight phase. So you could get three on your turn. Technically four if you blow yourself up with a plasma gun on a character. I mean, it, it could happen. <laughs> don't bank on it. Don't, don't bank on that. And then on your opponent's turn, you're, you could probably pull one. You could, you could probably lose a character and, uh, kill something in the fight phase. So you're looking uh, most turns though, you're going to get like one or two. And then to actually perform an active faith, you had only a unit with active faith can spend one of these dice. So you can use this once per phase. And then before making a die roll for a model with acts of faith, you can pick one or two miracle dice because you can also do charge rolls. And then you just use that die and that die is considered the final result it you can't re-roll it because it's considered because re-roll just replaces one result with another this is considered the final result it's not a modifier it's not inherently modified die so if you had something that triggers off an unmodified die roll of six and you use a six miracle die it applies or same thing with ones they apply you can also only use it for certain kinds of rolls those are advanced rolls charge rolls 
hit rolls, wound rolls, saving throws, damage rolls, so rolling to see how much damage something does, and morale tests. So you can still chuck those ones at morale tests. And so, yeah, one, yeah, once per phase, you can do that. And I can tell you from personal experience, these come in really handy at the right times. Sometimes you'll have a, a run where you just, ro- like, twos are the worst miracle dice you can roll because twos aren't good for <laughs> anything. Unless you have a cannonist or somebody swinging because they hit on twos. But these come in clutch and being able to kind of manipulate your luck this way is really useful. And it does make the army play differently than any other army in 40k. And then there's one more ability and this one applies army wide. And this is on page 93 and that's sacred rites. At the beginning of the game, after you've determined your mission, you select one sacred rite. You can either pick one. Or roll two, make sure you get two, and keep rolling until you get two different results. And so you can have one selected or two random ones. And they apply to everything that has the sacred rights ability in your army. And there are rules that will allow you to have extra sacred rights become available or replace existing sacred rights. So you're not necessarily locked into these. But these all have their use. So we'll run down real quick. Number one, Hand of the Emperor. While this right's active, add one to your advance and charge rolls. If you're playing an assault-based army, this is golden. Spirit of the Martyr. When this right's active, each time a model in this unit is destroyed by a melee attack and does not explode, roll a d6. On a 6, after the attacking model's unit has finished making its attacks, it suffers a mortal wound. So basically, the guy that killed you takes damage. It's okay, but it only happens on a 6. I don't like this one that much. Yeah. Three, Aegis of the Emperor, lets your Shield of Faith deny psychic powers on a five instead of a six. That one can be really useful, because denying yes. a third of all psychic abilities with every unit in your army, really yeah. good. If you're, pl- if you're playing those Thousand Sons or Grey Knight players, this is an easy take. Divine Guidance, while this right's active, each time a model in this unit makes a ranged attack on an unmodified wound roll of six, the AP goes up by one. It's fine. Useful. Uh, the Passion, while this Sacred Rite is active, each time a model in this unit makes a melee attack, unmodified hit rolls of six score additional hits. I like this one. Again, it's a melee-focused one, but being able to, you know, get more more attacks in or more hits in, that's always useful. And then finally, Light of the Emperor, while the Sacred Rite is active, you can ignore any and all modifiers to this unit's leadership characteristic, and each time a combat attrition test is taken for this unit, you can ignore any or all modifiers. Um, considering you can take some big units in this, that's not necessarily bad. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that one being very useful, like, in scenario, like, the way, with certain builds. Right. And by saying any and all modifiers, that would also include the modifier for being, like, under half starting strength for a unit. So, it's not the most immediately obvious one to take, but I can see where it would come in handy. Honestly, Hand of the Emperor, Aegis of the Emperor, and the Passion are the best ones in here. Mm-hmm. and you're most likely like Age of the Emperor again depends like you wouldn't ever take it against play- when you're playing against like Tau or Drukhari but Hand and Passion are pretty good Divine Guidance can be helpful Light of the Emperor can be helpful honestly Spirit of the Martyr is the one I would take the least often mm-hmm. but it also means everybody in your <laughs> army technically explodes on a six <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair alright so now that we've we've kind of got the army rules down Let's hop back up and start looking at what our different orders of sisters do. So uh, we mentioned Order of the Martyred Lady. Uh, and again, we're going to try to go through these relatively quickly. 
um, Blood of Martyrs, you gain a miracle die at the end of any phase other than the morale phase in which any units from that order are destroyed. And that's in addition to anything you lose from losing a character. So if you lose a martyred lady character, you get two miracle dice. Nice. You're you're also talking about a generally toughness three army, so you're going to lose units. (laughs) That, you know, having more miracle dice is good. And then anytime a model, an attack is made by a model with this conviction. If the unit's below its starting strength, you add one to hit. So if you've lost a model in a unit, like a 10 sister unit has lost a model, they are now hitting on twos and threes in close combat. So not a bad one. And then honor the martyrs as their strat. Uh, at the end of a phase in which one of your martyred lady characters was killed by an enemy unit, uh, until the end of the battle, the rest of your army is plus one to to wound that unit right there. The unit that killed them. So they want revenge. That's pretty neat. Yeah. And then their warlord trait. Actually, I do want to cover the warlord traits because some of these are kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. Anytime an attack is allocated to the warlord, subtract one from the damage characteristic to a minimum of one. I'm glad they put that there. We'll explain why later. <laughs> Each time you gain a miracle die at the end of a phase as a result of vengeance, killing an enemy unit, if the warlord destroyed any enemy units, the miracle die is automatically a six. And each time you gain a miracle die at the end of a phase as a result of sacrifice, or if the warlord was destroyed during that phase, the miracle die is automatically a six. So basically, you make better miracle dice if your warlord's involved. So that one's kind of cool. Yeah. Valor's Heart. Each time you would lose a wound as a result of a mortal wound, uh, on a 5-up, they ignore it. And each time an attack is allocated to a model with this conviction, if that attack is AP 1 or minus 1 or minus 2, the uh, AP is reduced by 1. So they shrug off AP minus 1 like nothing, because they've got th- most of them are going to have 3-up armor. So that one's not bad. Uh, so they are a more resilient force, which is, again, good if you're a T3 army. Their strat is whenever you like you use it when in either shooting or fighting phase when a Valorous Heart unit is selected to shoot or fight. Um, until the end of that phase, uh, they ignore any or all hit roll, ballistic skill, or weapon skill modifiers. So if somebody's applying a penalty to you, no, they're not. And then uh, Warlord trait, their Warlord, whenever their Warlord performs an act of faith, which means the Warlord is spending a miracle die, they regain a lost wound. And each time the Warlord would lose a wound, uh, they they don't on a 5-up. So they basically are Death Guard. Like, old-school Death Guard. Bloody Rose. This one's been a very popular one in 8th edition. Um, it's been toned down a little bit, but I think it's still really good. Each time a unit with this conviction fights, if it uh, charge was charged, heroically intervened, then until the fight is resolved, they get an extra attack. Really solid. And then each time a model with this conviction makes a melee attack, if the model charged was charged or heroically intervened, improve the AP characteristic of that attack by one. So better AP on your attacks, your wounds are more likely to stick. Now, this got toned down because it just used to be all the time. You didn't have to be the one charging, and it affected pistols, which Seraphim loved (laughs) because they're armed with dual pistols. Now, it only affects your melee attacks and only in terms... Only in turns when you're charging. So A, B, C, always be charging. Their strat is tear them down, which has also been toned down a bit. Because if I remember right, it used to add one to the wound roll. Now it says, like, you select a Bloody Rose unit when they fight. Uh, they just wound on hit rolls of six. On unmodified hit rolls of six. 
which I don't think it's as good. But again, Bloody Rose was like one of those was one of those things like everybody's taking this, so we should tone it down. Mm-hmm. And then their warlord trait is add one to the attacks characteristic of this warlord, and the warlord can charge after advancing. Really good for this army. Also, I, their relic is the best chainsword ever because it's plus two <laughs> yeah. strength, which is great for sisters. Minus two AP, one damage, which is a reduction. It used to be two, but it also used to be strength plus one. And then its extra ability is when the bear fights, they make three additional attacks with this weapon instead of one. And if there were six or more enemy models within three inches of the bearer, which is always going to be a canonist, when it's selected to fight, they get D3 plus three additional attacks. So you can wade into a, a horde and actually cut them down with this. And remember, you're a canonist, so you're going to be hitting on twos. So uh, Bloody Rose, toned down, still good. Eben Chalice, uh, this is the one that's all about worshipping the Emperor perfectly. If any units in the, your army have this conviction, you cannot randomly select two sacred rites. Instead, you have to select two sacred rites. So your army gets more rites than anybody else. Oh, darn, I always get to pick two? Oh, shucks. Yeah. <laughs> and then there, uh, each time a model or unit in this conviction performs an act of faith, you can choose to discard an extra miracle die, and that makes the miracle die that you're using become a six, regardless of what you rolled for it. So you you, you miracle die better than anybody else too. It just co- you just have to use more miracle dice to do it. Their strat is cleansing flames, which makes your flame weapons have four ex- four inches of extra range, which is really good because now that gets pretty much all of them up to sixteen. <laughs> And then every, every time you make an attack with a flame weapon on an unmodified roll of four up, the target suffers a mortal wound in addition to normal damage, capping at three mortal wounds. So if you absolutely positively need to burn someone down, this strat can kind of help get you there. I don't, I won't say it will do it. It just helps. And then, um, their warlord trait is if your warlord's on the battlefield, the first miracle die you get or the miracle die you get at the start of the battle round is just a six. Don't bother rolling. And then uh, you can refund uh, command points spent on strats on a five up. So pretty good. Pretty good. There's Argent Shroud, which, Dennis, this has got to be the one after your own heart. Yeah, Bloody Rose and Argent Shroud were the two that I really liked. So Argent Shroud is you count as remaining stationary after you make a normal move or advance in your movement phase. So as we talked about that FAQ earlier, this because this specifies advance or or normal move... It would not apply if you fell back. If you fell back, you would still not count as being stationary. And then each time a unit with this conviction is selected to shoot or fight, you can re-roll one hit, one hit roll or one wound roll. That's always useful. And then their, their strat is uh, use it in any phase whenever one of your Argent Shroud units would, would be losing a wound from a mortal wound. Uh, they shrug off mortal wounds on a four up. Yeah, I think oh, that's nice. really useful. Yeah, that one's really nice, and and that that could be any phase. So like, let's say again, you're fighting against uh, a Death Guard army that has the capability of inflicting extra mortal wounds or something like that. You could still shrug them off even outside the psychic phase. So it, it can be useful. I'm actually comparing it to the previous edition. It used to only be usable in the psychic phase, and it was a five up. Yep. So it's definitely so it's, better. It's better. Yeah. <laughs> better all around. <laughs> yep. And then their warlord trait. The warlord is eligible to. Prov- Perform a heroic intervention if within six inches horizontally and five vertically instead of three horizontally, five vertically. And the warlord always fights, is under a always fights first rule. 
And then their relic also, again, Dennis, I'm sure you love this, three three inches of extra movement, and any time somebody tries to make an attack against you, they have to subtract one from the hit roll. I mean, that's just really good. Yeah. And then finally, Sacred Rose, uh, Devout Serenity. Um, you automatically pass combat attrition tests, which means you can you can only ever lose one model from failing the initial morale test, which is basically what they did before. And then mm-hmm. each time you use a miracle die when a model or unit with this conviction performs an act of faith, roll a d6 on a four up, you get a miracle die. So you refund half of your miracle dice. That's really good. Useful. <laughs> Um, Emperor's Judgment is their strat. It basically lets them do an extra hit anytime they shoot with and uh, do an unmodified hit roll of six. This used to only affect bolt weapons. It's now all of their weapons, so really nice. useful. And then uh, their Warlord trait, once per turn when this Warlord performs an act of faith, a Miracle Die using that act of faith is considered to be a six, and that's one Miracle Die, so if you need to reroll a charge... One of them's going to be a six, and then the other one is whatever it rolled. And then um, their warlord has the aura. While a friendly order of Sacred Rose core unit is within six inches of the warlord, if the core unit falls back, they can still shoot. I don't think there's a bad order. It, this is this is not like a uh, like an Adeptus Mechanicus where there's one that's obviously like, oh, that's the one you take. All of these lend themselves to various playstyles. I think we used to think Argent Shroud was the worst one. And I think now it's on par with the others. Yeah, for sure. And then you have the Menorah's Convictions, which is you pick two of these. Um, there's like basically two pages of them. You pick two of them. Although one of them is basically you have the order convictions of one of the six main orders. Um, they also have a trio of them that you cannot take together, which is... Uh, Raging Fervor, Rites of Fire, and Unshakable Vengeance. Raging Fervor makes your uh, Melta weapons count as being... They give you a, they give you a set, of, set of circumstances in which your Melta weapon is considered to be in half range to get the extra damage. Or uh, Rites of Fire gives you four extra inches of range for all your flame weapons. Or Unshakable Vengeance uh, lets all your bolt weapons ignore any hit roll or ballistic skill modifiers. You can't take all three of those, or you can't take any two of them together, but if you want to have, like, I'm going to do a, uh, an all-flamer build for my sisters, uh, take Rites of Fire, and then pick something else, like, uh, oh, uh, and some of these are, like, half of some of the orders, which is pretty normal, like, yeah. Perfervid Belief is the one, select, discard a Miracle Die, and the other one counts as a six, you know, so that sounds familiar, or Holy Wrath, which is half of Bloody Rose, but you also can't use Devout Fanaticism, which gives you plus one to the attack hit roll when you charge where charged or heroically intervene. So it's just like yeah. you can kind of get like like you can with Space Marines, half of a an order's ability and then something else to slot in to give yourself a little bit of flavor. Yeah, I like them. I think they're all relatively good. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, stratagems we'll cover at the end because we'll want to see what the units do to key off of them. And, and then we get to Blessings of the Faithful. This is a brand new thing, and this is their equivalent of the Master of the Whatever. It's just like the character upgrades that can be applied to pretty much anybody. Yeah, if your army is Battleforged and includes any Adeptus Rotas detachments, not counting auxiliary support, super heavy auxiliary fortifications, 
Uh, then when you are mustering your army, you can upgrade any Canonist or Palatine models in your army by giving them one Blessing of the Faithful. And they cost a certain number of points, raise its power level by a little bit. Um, named characters can't be given them. And uh, each one has two associated abilities. Uh, the first is just an ability that that model gains. And then the second one's a miraculous ability. To use it, you discard a miracle die. They're all basically have a range, a, mirac- a miracle range, which is determined by how big a, the value of the die was. So if you discarded a one, it's a one inch bubble. If you discarded a two to five, it's a three inch bubble. If you discard a six, it's a six inch bubble. They work similarly to auras, but they are not considered auras. So anything that would shut off aura abilities do not affect these. Also, anything that would extend aura abilities do not affect these. So, for example, there's Word of the Emperor, which I think is one of the better ones. And it's also the most expensive at 40 points and two power. Mm -hmm. Um, At the start of the fight phase, you select an enemy unit within three inches of the model. That model fights last. It cannot fight until everything else in your army has has chosen to fight. And then the Miraculous ability is... When an enemy unit is within miracle range of this model, each time a model in a friendly order core or order character unit makes a melee attack, that unit can't take invulnerable saves. I like that. That's pretty spicy. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you can double that up with some with and layer that with like some of the named characters. Named characters can't take it, but a canonist could and could be running up alongside that named character and could get good. Although most of the named characters aren't from a particular order, so actually it wouldn't work with them. It would work with mm. one of them. Yeah. There's one it would work with. Rapturous blows add one to the strength and damage characteristics of all melee weapons this model is equipped with, excluding relics. And then the miraculous ability is when a friendly order or core or character units within miracle range of this model um, whenever they do a wound roll, unmodified wound roll of six, it does a mortal wound in addition. Nice. And again, these are once per battle that you can activate these. So you can't just like burn miracle dice every turn to have this. You use it at certain clutch moments. But the extra strength and damage characteristics are just nice. Divine Deliverance, this one uh, allows you to shut down opponent's auras. If you can equal or beat their leadership on 3d6 and they're within six inches of your character... So that one can be pretty handy, and leaderships tend to run a little bit lower in ninth edition, so more often than not, you're going to shut down their auras. Mm-hmm. And the Miraculous ability is not great. When a friendly core character model is within miracle range of the model, each time that model makes a ranged attack, if the attack caused an enemy model to be destroyed, then you subtract one from the enemy unit's leadership characteristic to a max of minus three. With an army that doesn't apply a lot of other leadership penalties, it's kind of weirdly out of place. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's also the cheapest one at only 15 points, so I think they kind of know most people aren't going to be taking it. Emperor's Grace, this one I really like. At the start of each of your command phases, the model is healed and regains D3 lost wounds once per turn. Mm -hmm. And then the Miraculous ability... Which this is actually an ability similar to this got used against me in my game between Death Guard and Mechanicus because, um, like infiltrators had an ability, like if you're within 12 inches of them, this happens and it's actually very useful. When a friendly core or character unit is within miracle range of this model, each time an attack is made against that unit, your opponent cannot reroll the hit roll, wound roll, or damage roll. Like reroll abilities just don't work. Yeah, that's that can be huge. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's a good one to pull in at a clutch time. Like somebody's coming at you. This unit has to survive. Pop this ability. Awesome. Well, the other thing that's nice about that is that's actually one that doesn't require you to like spend like good miracle dice. Like, cause obviously like the other ones you're going to want to spend, you know, higher numbers since it's a once per game. So like you can extend that aura out and it's still useful to extend that aura out, you know, multiple inches. But like if you're in melee, you, you drop a one on that and you basically can keep your, you know, potentially give your character a better chance of being a lot, you know, remaining alive. Or that's one that like being in melee, you're going to be close to other units. So you can actually still get bang for your buck without having to spend like a six. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Righteous Judgment. Each time you select a target for this model's ranged weapons, you can basically snipe them. You ignore Lookout, sir. And then uh, basically you get all the sniper rules. When your wound rolls, uh, your wound rolls of six inflict mortal wounds in addition to normal. And then Numeracus ability is uh, core and character units don't allow their targets to get cover, which is okay. With more terrain out now, that could actually be useful. And then uh, Blinding Radiance, uh, each time a ranged attack is made against this model, subtract one from the wound roll. So ranged shots are less likely to hurt you. And then the Miraculous ability is when a friendly order core or character unit is within miracle range of this model. Each time a ranged attack is made against that unit, subtract one from the attack's hit roll. That one, like if you're playing against a shooty army, that's good. But these also have to be taken during list building. And in that case, I would say Word of the Emperor Rapturous Blows are the best if you're likely to be in close combat. Emperor's Grace is good for everybody. Like, there's not a case where you don't want your character to regain wounds. Righteous Judgment, depending on how you're equ- you equip your characters, because being able to snipe, like, a Psyker with a Condemner Bolt Gun could be really useful. Um, yeah. like, so there's, there's a couple of cases where I can see that one working and then blinding radiance is generally useful, but there will be some armies that's going to be way more effective against than others. So, which surprises me is the emperor's grace, the one that heals characters and can shut down reroll auras or reroll abilities is the second least expensive at only 20 points. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And which and with word of the emperor being very expensive at 40. I mean, there are characters in this book that cost less than that ability. <laughs> so it's like that one that one it's good, don't get me wrong, but it's a hard sell to try to take that, especially when you can't put it on named characters and there's some named characters that absolutely don't need it. <laughs> um let's see warlord traits. We'll move on to the next page and there's a bunch of characters in this book. So Each of these warlord traits is used by a different character. Most of them are relatively similar. Firing order changed a bit. Um, It makes anything you use in your command phase or intones a hymn, which is a thing that we'll we'll talk about in a bit. Um, You add three inches to the range. Does not affect miracle range. They specify that. And uh, the warlord has an aura of, uh, while friendly core unit from this order has been six inches of the warlord they ignore the penalty combat attrition penalty for being below half strength yay not not great on that one righteous rage used to give you re-rolls on charges and let you re-roll wound rolls when you charge where charge or heroically intervened now it's just whenever you make a uh, a melee attack you can re-roll the hit roll and wound roll it's really good now much better <laughs> 
Executioner of Heretics, uh, it basically applies uh, a leadership penalty of one if an enemy unit's within six inches, including to their combat attrition tests. So, yay! Again, this is not an army that really leans hard into leadership penalties, so I guess it's okay. Beacon of Faith. This one took a hit. This used to be the one that Celestine had, and it basically was like, you just get an extra miracle die at the be- in your command phase. Like, at the start of your turn, you just get an extra miracle die. Fantastic. Now, it's at the start of your command phase, if your warlord's on the battlefield, you gain a miracle die, but only the warlord can use it, either for an active faith or a miraculous ability. Which, keep that in mind, a miraculous ability is not considered an active faith. So, if you have, like, if you're... Uh, Sacred was it Sacred Rose that lets you re like replace one on a four up does not apply to miraculous abilities. They're two different things. The die can only be used when your warlord performs an act of faith or a miraculous ability, and if you don't use it by your next command phase, it goes away. It doesn't stay in the pool. But you can also still use it even if somebody else has done an act of faith that phase. So that's kind of nice. It's a Warlord-specific act of faith, which means your Warlord better be doing stuff that's act of faith worthy. Let's see. Then there's Indomitable Belief, which is a six-inch aura of improve Shield of Faith saves by one. Always useful? Always useful. And that is Celestine's Warlord trait now, which used to just be an ability she had. So now she has to be your Warlord if you want that to come from her. And then finally, Pure of Will... Um, your warlord can attempt to deny an additional psychic power in your opponent's psychic phase as described by Shield of Faith. And the warlord adds three to those deny the witch tests. And then the last thing before we get into, well, I guess there's relics, but, uh, the last thing we, we get into as far as like rules that multiple units can apply to, or will apply to multiple units is hymns of battle. And this is basically sisters have chaplains now. And also all the priests work this way. Some of the priests only have the generic one here, which is war hymn, which is what they used to have just an aura of, which was units within six inches of them got an extra attack. Now that's a, a hymn that they have to sing. So it's not always up. But the flip side is more units have access to that hymn. Mm-hmm. And then the six uh, hymns are select an enemy unit within 12 inches invisible to the priest. If the hymn goes off, the unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. So get yourself a smite. Uh, if the unit was is, has the chaos keyword, it's just a straight three mortal wounds. Um, there's one... Uh, if the hymns go- goes off, select a friendly Ministorm core, Ministorm character, or engine of redemption unit within six inches. If the unit is being affected by any psychic powers, that if those effects end, and they cannot be affected by any more psychic powers until your next command phase. That one's good if you're trying to deal with psychers. Um, Palm of Righteous Smiting, the third one. If the hymn goes off, add one of the priest's strength and attacks. Improve the priest's AP by one. And at the end of the fight phase, if the priest is in engagement range of any units, it can fight another time. Not bad. Yeah, yeah. Enduring, uh, there's a fourth one, Enduring Faith, the hymn is inspiring. Select a Adeptus Sororitas core or character unit within six inches of the priest. Uh, their Shield of Faith save goes up by one to a max of four, so that can stack with Indomitable Belief. 
Five Verse of Holy Piety. If the hymn's inspiring, select a friendly Adeptus Sortas core or Sortas character unit within six inches of the priest. Select a sacred rite that's not active for your army. They get that sacred rite for a turn. And then Catechism Repugnance. The hymn's inspiring. Select a friendly Sororitas core character unit within six inches of the priest. Each time they make a ranged attack with a bolt weapon, sixes, sixes to hit automatically wound. And if the target's within half, basically within rapid fire range, half range, the AP is improved by one. Not bad. And you'll notice the first three all mention like Adeptus Ministorum, which also applies to all the sister stuff. Four through six all specify Sororitas. And the reason is Sororitas priests get access to all six. Cult Imperialis priests only get access to the first three. So this is basically Psyker abilities without having a Psyker, but some psyker, some of your priests have have different access. I like it because like it's very... The, in general, the chaplain abilities, I think, were a good addition that they added midstream in 8th edition that I'm glad they're carrying forward. It all it definitely makes sense thematically for this army, um, and especially the the units that became priests. So, yeah, I, I like it. I think it's a cool way to add unique stuff into this army. Yeah, um, and then we get to relics again. I don't want to spend a lot of time on relics. Uh, there's a number of weapon replacements. There's a couple that are good for keeping characters alive longer, like the mantle of Ophelia. A canonist can take it. All attacks have their damage reduced to one against her which is really good. Triptych of the Macarian Crusade, uh, Sanctified or Cult Imperialis models only, so basically not mo- generally not sisters, plus one toughness, four up and vulnerable save, and the first time a saving throw has failed for the bearer, the damage of the attack is reduced to zero, so you can make nice. sure they just don't die. Or the Iron, Sup- Iron Surplus of St. Estalia, uh, Sortas only, add one wounds, Wounds only hurt them on a four up and they get a two up save. Yeah. So you've got some weapon swaps. You've got some survivability items. You've got like the book of St. Lucius, which is still around, which includes increases aura ranges by three inches to a max of 12, all kinds of, you know, stuff that's generally good to have. And then, you know, each of the orders has their own thing too. Yeah. I want to talk very briefly on crusade stuff. The crusade, kind of campaign thing for sisters is make one of your characters a living saint. Basically you can earn saint points and then like you pick what kind of trial you're doing. You earn saint points by doing certain things during that trial. And then once you have uh, five saintly rewards from the various trials, because basically you earn 10 saint saint points for a particular trial you gain the saintly reward for that trial. Once you have all, let's see, there's one, two, three, four, five. Once you have all five saintly rewards, the unit becomes a living saint. And then there's, you know, there will be other things that key off of that. So that's kind of a fun system. And again, very thematic with like, so you're basically going to try to make like one of your canvases into a saint. So that's cool. That's fun. And now let's get to data sheets, and uh, we've got some doozies. Uh, let's just start a, start it off from the top with the big new gal herself in her shiny metal suit, Morvan Vall. Morvan Vall is a beast. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I might be missing. I don't see that keyword on her sheet. No, no, she no, she's a character. <laughs> but she okay. 
Well, I can't say monster either. That's also a keyword. But <laughs> how about absolute terror? Is does that is that Sup- still applicable? Supreme Commander. I think that's actually uh, you know <laughs> she has the Supreme Commander keyword <laughs> yeah, too. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, first off, she has the normal like Captain Chapter Master things where core soror- any sword toss core unit within six inches of her rerolls hit and wound rolls of one. So she is both a captain and a lieutenant rolled into one. She can pick a Sorotas core or character unit within six inches of her, which, by the way, she's a Sorotas character. She can pick herself. And until the start of your next command phase, each time a model in that unit makes an attack, you can reroll the hit roll and reroll the wound roll. However, you wouldn't need to select her because Righteous Rage is also her warlord trait, and she has to be your warlord if you bring her, so she's already yep. rerolling all her hit and wound rolls. Yeah, she trumps Celestine. Yeah. Uh, strength 5, tough 5, 5 attacks, 8 wounds, weapon skill, ballistic skill 2, 2 up save, 8 inches of movement. She's already a really solid type. Her spear is either 10 attacks at strength 5, AP minus 2, or 5 attacks at strength 8, AP minus 3, 3 damage that causes mortal wounds in addition on wound rolls of 6. She's got a a 3-shot a heavy bolter at strength six. She's got a missile launcher on her back, uh, like a two shot missile launcher on her back. She's great. You know, she, she, her armament's really good. And then you get into her suit and what uh, all her rules. She's got a four up and vulnerable save. She ignores molder wounds on a four up. Anytime attacks are allocated to her, you just have the damage rounding up. Once per battle, if she's still within engagement range of enemy units, she can fight again. I like that one. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then she has to be your warlord. She has the chapter master abilities. She explodes on a, on a six, and units, she explodes small. It's only one mortal wound. And she is a supreme commander, so you can drop her into a supreme commander t- detachment. And she's 265 points. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Pr- pretty solid. Pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, she will, she'll be tearing up the field. And she's going to be, she's not impossible to kill, but she's going to be tough to kill. Because the weapons that are best equipped to take her down are only going to do half damage, assuming they get past her saves. And she can spend Miracle Dice to make those saves. So, (laughs) like, you really won't need to do Miracle Dice for her attacks, because, I mean, she's hitting on twos, and she can reroll all of them, so she's fine. I've seen some people say that, like, every competitive list is likely going to be running her. I don't know if that's entirely true, but she's you're going to see a lot of her on the table. She's good. Yeah. Moving on, Candace is basically a, a Space Marine captain for sisters. They've got a variety of bits of war gear, chain swords, power swords, plasma pistols. They can take other kinds of pistols, so hand flamers, bolt pistols, inferno pistols. And the kit for the Canis actually comes with, like, all these options. So I do really like the new multi-part Canonist kit. It's really flexible. I will admit, when I got it, I was, like, a little overwhelmed. Like, wow, the picture just showed one, <laughs> and in here there's all of these. And I'm like, okay, you're not getting put together until I see the codex. Yeah, good call, uh, because, you know. <clears throat> it, it's the old uh, Space Marine Captain kit, where it's like, oh, yeah, okay, Sprue 1 is... You know, the legs and the torso and sprues two, three, and four are all the weapon options. I'm like, oh, you gave me everything. I like this. <laughs> yeah. 
And if you buy the Combat Patrol or if you have the the Monopose model from the original Army Box, uh, that is equipped with what is now considered the stock canonist gear of a plasma pistol, a power sword, and a rod of office, which the rod of office gives you um, basically get uh, a captain ability, a second captain ability that goes to 12 inches while you still have the first one at six inches. Nice. Um, we've got the Palatine, which is basically a lieutenant, always armed with a, well, they've got a bolt pistol power sword, but they can be equipped with a plasma pistol, which they probably should be because that's how the model comes out. But Palatines are simple enough. You can cuss, you can scratch build a, a Palatine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's a sister's character basically, you know, very simple sister's character. Junith Aruda, uh, is, um, martyred lady only. She's the one on the big flying flamer pulpit. And this is also our first time to see the difference in flame weapons between the uh, Sisters of Battle and everyone else. And that is that all the flamer weapons in this have a word added to the beginning of their name. They are Ministorum Flamers. Ministorum Flamers have one extra strength. So a Ministorum Heavy Flamer is strength 6 instead of strength 5, which is really good. Really, unless you're playing Martyred Lady... I mean, she's okay for Martyred Lady. Uh, she provides, and it's basically the chapter master ability of picking a unit and they can reroll all their hit rolls within six inches. Uh, so she's kind of like an or a Martyred Lady chapter master, if you want to go with that. Uh, missionary is basically your HQ position priest, and they have War Hymn and one of the Hymns of Battle that they, you know, those first three Hymns of Battle. And hymns of battle go off on a three-up. So basically, in your command phase, you're like, he's going to sing a hymn. Roll a d6. On a three-up, it goes off. That's why, like, war hymns is not up all the time, unlike like unlike how it used to be before. But you have more flexibility on which ones you want to take. So uh, missionaries are equipped all right. And they do have the option of a power maul and a servo stubber. Which is how the one in how the priest in Blackstone Fortress is equipped. So he's the yeah. default priest now. Although the picture they have in here is the old metal model, which I think is kind of funny. Right. Well, yeah, because power. It's kind of funny. His powerball used to not be an option. Yep. So also, you yeah. can have the bolt pistol, Ministorum shotgun, and chainsword if you have the old Uriah Jacobus model as your missionary. <laughs> so. So they made sure to like keep this kind of backwards compatible and also like sideways forward compatible, but they also know like there's not a lot of good missionary models out right now, and you can't get the Blackstone Fortress ones separately yet. Uh, Celestine and the Gemini, they are now a single unit again, and the Gemini are not optional. They almost sounded like a band. Yeah. They're keeping the tradition of, of always changing it every every book, though. I like that. Right. If they couldn't change the Acts of Faith system, we're at least going to change Celestine. Because uh, for a while, people were taking Celestine by herself because it was cheaper. Because the Gemini were a nice to have, but not a requirement. Now they are they are one package. Although I, they come in cheaper than you could buy them together in the 8th edition codex. So it, it's just like a flat 200 points. Attack, the Gemini have to, take, have to have the wounds allocated to them first, which is kind of how they were before. The Gemini have a four-up and vulnerable save. She has a four-up and vulnerable save. They all have two-up armor this time, which is better because the Gemini used to be a three-up. Celestine reduces all attacks coming into her by one. And I didn't notice this before because we're going to mention it on another data sheet, but she doesn't say to a minimum of one. 
Really? Celestine okay, has a four yeah. invulnerable save. Each time an attack is allocated to Celestine, subtract one from the damage characteristic of that attack. Uh, maybe that's a thing. Without having the minimum of one there, she's immune to bolter fire. She's immune to almost all melee attacks, you know, that aren't oh like specifically gosh. geared up. Okay. That's gotta be eroded soon. Cause that's terrifying. Unless they really, really mean it, because that's... Uh, wow. Oof. That's that's horrifying if it's... <laughs> Once you throw in some of her other abilities, she never gonna die. Well, isn't that her shtick? <laughs> that is kind of her thing. But but it's never good in a, at a, in a war game to have unkillable models. That's, that's never it, good. That is very true. If she is somehow destroyed, just like as she always has, roll a d6... At the end of that phase, instead of using any rules that are triggered when a model is destroyed, for example, sacrifice, you don't get a miracle die the first time she dies. Um, on a one, the unit counts as being destroyed for the purpose of sacrifice. On a two up, she gets back up with all her wounds remaining as close as possible to where she was destroyed and not in an engagement range of any enemies. Uh, Imperium infantry units within six inches of her get a six up and vulnerable save. Uh, she can deep strike finally. The whole unit can deep strike, which she never really did before. No, she did. She didn't have the abilities here. At the end of seventh edition, in the in the storyboards, I saw her like appear at the battlefield in the story. That's deep striking, right? Yeah, but in well, in the codex, she couldn't. <laughs> oh, okay. And, <laughs> unless in unless in previous editions there was a flat like jump pack rule, which I don't think there was. So no, there wasn't. Uh, she heroically intervenes six inches instead of three, and that applies to all the models in the unit, so the Gemini get to go too. And then there's her, her healing tears ability, and this is interesting because this part of this used to just be a thing that automatically happened, and it was one of the things that was frustrating against for people who played against her is that her bodyguards. If there was one that was damaged, it would heal up to full. Otherwise, you would. if there was one that was lost, you would just replace it. And you. so unless you did enough damage, you could just keep refilling your, your bodyguards constantly. Now it's an action Celestine actually has to take. While a model in this unit has any lost wounds or while this unit is below starting strength, Celestine can attempt the following action. Unit starts this action at the end of your command phase. It's completed at the end of your shooting phase. So you will still have your charge and fight phases available. But you can't be in engagement range, obviously. But this is great if, like, if she dies, then on your turn, she's out of engagement range. You won't get your movement phase either. But depending on where she is, that might not be a problem. So what the action's completed at the end of your shooting phase. Once completed... If a model in this unit has lost any wounds, and that includes Celestine, all of that model's lost wounds are restored. Also, did I mention she has six wounds? <laughs> if you somehow wear her down to one, she'll get back up to full. Also, if the unit's below starting strength, Gemini with full wounds reappears. Making it an action balances it out, but they really didn't need to make any unit reheat heal full they should have said if a gemini model in this unit has lost <laughs> has less than starting wounds i kind of hope they errata that because she's going to be impossible to kill yeah there's yeah the only saving grace in this is that gemini count as named characters for all rules purposes so if somebody takes assassinate you can just keep feeding them points until they max out that secondary objective <laughs> right 
It, yeah, if somebody's playing Celestine, pick Assassinate, because you will earn your points chewing through their bodyguards constantly. Also, her weapons got upgraded, which is not a thing she needed, because her uh, she had... The, she, her Ardent Blade has always been a Heavy Flamer. It's now a Strength 6 AP minus 2 Heavy Flamer. And then her Sword, which has always been Strength plus 4 to get her up to Strength 7 when she attacks, is now AP minus 4 instead of AP minus 3, so it cuts through Power Armor like butter. Uh, it does 2 damage, which it did before. However, if you roll a si- an unmodified 6 to wound, it just does 2 mortal wounds and the attack sequence ends. So... One-sixth of your attacks are just going to do straight damage. Yeah. She, I mean, yes, Morven Vol is is awesome. Celestine is no slouch. So, like, I could absolutely see her still being on the battlefield. And they better errata that subtract one from the damage characteristic. Because that's terrifying. And I don't think they've put in a rare rule thing in the FAQ that specifies that all reduced damage abilities automatically cap at, uh, you know, stop at one. Mm-hmm. There's the Triumph of St. Catherine, which is potentially the most complex model they've ever made for this line. And I don't want to dip too far into the rules for this because it has all of them. It's an amazingly complex set of rules where it's like there's a number of relics based on how many wounds it has left. And so it's like you'll have six of these rules or four of these rules or two of these rules. It doesn't belong to a particular order. Although I do like the fact that they spe- even though it has 18 wounds, they put in a caveat that says it's considered to have a wounds characteristic of nine for the purposes of like lookout sir and any terrain traits that would like provide cover or such it doesn't count as being a huge unit because it literally represents six people walking around with holy relics right it yeah it's insane (laughs) yeah each of them represents a separate order of the of the adeptus oritas and like the things that make them special I'm actually just comparing it to the previous one. They actually toned the attack number way down. It's ten four two. It used to be fourteen eight and six. Although the uh, the and they get to make four attacks, four additional attacks. So so ten oh, four okay, two. So a, but yeah. the sword does four additional attacks with the martyr sword. Okay. So uh, that's so fair. it's the same number of attacks. Just four of them are particularly nasty. It's it's a big it's a big splashy display model. I don't know if it's actually good on the table, but I've seen some people using it, so, I mean, I guess it's okay. Let's see, moving on. Ephrael Stern and Kiganil of the Bloody Tears made their way from Pariah into this book. They are now officially in a codex. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, they're cool. She does not have Acts of Faith, by the way. She does not use Miracle Dice in any way, shape, or form, so just be aware of that. Although... Man, they are interesting. Uh, she's got six wounds. He's got five. They can deep strike because they just wander onto the battlefield as they pop up out of the webway because Kiganil's an Eldar and is taking taking her around on the webway. Yep. Yep. Four up in Vuln save. Uh, subtract one from hit, wo- hit rolls and wound rolls from all attacks against them. Uh, Kiganil has to take all the wounds. He ignores all wounds on a five up. And uh, the destruction of Kiganil is ignored for the purpose of morale tests. If Ephrael's stern is ever destroyed by some ability, Kiganil goes away. If Kiganil's still around, they fight first in the fight phase. 
chaos units subtract one from their leadership within six inches of them, and they one model will automatic one additional model automatically flees when they fail a morale test. That's actually a useful leadership penalty ability. Yes, that's very useful. Well, just think if you can try and stack them now, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> At the start of your shooting phase, roll 2d6, adding 2 to the result of if there are any chaos units within 18 inches. On a 5-up, which is not hard to get on 2d6, uh, the nearest enemy unit within 18 inches of invisible to Ephrael Stern suffers d3 mortal wounds. The result is 10 or more. She smites them. She yes. smites them with holy holy bolts. Yes. But it just automatically happens. Because it's not psychic. It's Yeah, it's uncancelable because it's not psychic, and she can't perils. The Emperor protects, right? Yep. And she can be in this unit can be in a sororitas detachment as an HQ or in an auxiliary support detachment. So you can throw her in with any Imperium army. <laughs> Uh, she's cool. Like, this is a cool unit. Yeah. I mean, I bought this unit when they first came out because I really wanted Kigano. I've never got a chance to use it, but I really want to use it in a sister's army now. Oh, yeah. Um, also, like, her sword it makes her strength 6, AP minus 3, 2 damage, no invuln saves allowed. And his swords just do... He just gets 8 attacks instead of 4. <laughs> Now, granted, they're at strength three, so that's not fantastic, but... It's typical Eldar. Typical yeah. Eldar, yeah. But, like, if you're going, you know, walking into a horde of, like, tough three stuff, I mean, they hit on twos, and so it's just like, you'll, you'll do damage. All right, now we're going to get into troops. This one's easy. There's one. Uh, Battle Sister Squad. I still like them as a choice. No, I, uh, you better, because that's the only one you get. <laughs> No, they are a good troops <laughs> choice. They can also go up to 20 models now. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I'm seeing people talking about builds of like having like one big old blob of these to like hold objectives or push forward into objectives and then having like small units of like five to kind of fill in like the rest of your troop choices. And I could totally see it. Yeah. The war gear, they've kind of tweaked the war gear. You can't do the unit of five that has a heavy and a special weapon or two special weapons. So you can't double up on, like, people were doing a lot of, like, doubling up or tripling up, if you include the the Sister Superior, of, like, Storm Bolters. You yep. can't do that anymore. And they did that, like, now there was a strat that made Storm Bolters really good and made them do, like, AP minus two, two damage. That strat has changed. But... All the storm bolters in this army, except for the ones on vehicles, are now artificer crafted storm bolters, and they're just t a flat two damage now, which is really really good. Which is probably why they don't want small units of five doubling up on them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but if for every ten models in the list, you can have one weapon from the special weapons list. From every ten models in the unit, you can have a weapon from the heavy weapons or special weapons list. So you could still have four in a unit of 20, and then the Sister Superior can uh, can have a ranged weapon, not a special weapon. So you can have four bolters, or like four storm bolters, or four flamers, or mix and match, but like a unit of 20, you can do a lot of kidding out and do do some very interesting things. Th like, these are, like I said, these are your troops' choice. They're fine. They're good at shooting. They're not as good as assault. They are strength three, tough three, but they will get a lot of work done. Um, getting into another one of our another new characters, 
and I'm going to try to pronounce this properly because it looks like somebody had butted a keyboard. Astrid Thurga and Agatha Dolan. These are the ones with the uh, the new banner. Um, Agatha Dolan is basically a bodyguard for Astrid Thurga. Each time an attack with a damage characteristic of one is allocated to Astrid Thurga, add one to any armor save throw made against the attack, which doesn't kick in until Agatha's dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just keep that in mind. She can select Sorotas characters within nine inches of her. Those characters can uh, re-roll one hit roll, one wound roll, or, or or one damage roll. Not all three. One of, one of these until when resolving the unit's attacks. And then her, there's her banner that she can uh, place. Uh, if she does, until the start of your next command phase, she has an aura that says, uh, while friendly core Sorotas units within six inches of her, are of this or within six inches of this model, they count as having all six sacred rights active, which is okay, I guess, for a turn. Yeah, I don't know if it, she's an elite choice, so she's not taking up an HQ slot. I don't know if she's worth taking in a crusade army. She might be because she'll give uh, your potential saint an extra saint point in crusade play. Like, she strikes me as, like, a narrative character, not a, a match play character. And that's fine. It's okay to have those. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. The Imagifier, which is the gal that walks around with the big statue on a stick, she basically ha- tells tales, and that gives her an aura that, you know, helps the units around her. She used to, the big thing for her used to be Tale of the Stoic, which let you ignore AP minus one. That is now no longer the thing. That is subtracts one for it's an aura of subtract one from wound rolls each time they're hit with an attack of strength three or less. That's yeah. pretty useless. Faithful is good. Uh, reroll advance and charge rolls if you if you start within six inches of her or tail of the mm. war warrior. Add one to the strength, which is always good for for sisters units. But yeah, f- she's not the must take that she was in some armies that. Like she used to be, not bad, not terrible, just not not a must-have. The Dialogus, which used to be all about having an aura of allowing you to kind of manipulate your your miracle dice by like raising the or lowering the value by one, she still has that ability. But the big thing on the Dialogus and the reason they raised her cost from like fourteen points to forty is she's a priest now. She is a Sororitas priest, and that actually makes her worth taking. Yeah, for sure. Like, they, I, I like this change for her because it gives her a, <clears throat> a a much like more valuable role on the battlefield. So I, I like it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The preacher is interesting because just like the pr- the missionary was equipped by default as the one in Blackstone Fortress, so is the preacher because being armed with the zealot's vindic- uh, vindictor is the chainsaw heavy flamer that the <laughs> that Pius Vore has in Blackstone Fortress. So that's the default nice. gear, but you can also replace it with an auto pistol and chainsword if you have the old model. And this priest has one pre- one hymn and it's war hymn. That's all they know. All they're good at is is giving people more attacks. But the preacher is also like a 25 point model. So I could absolutely see throwing one in if you're going to have a unit of repentia or something like that. Let's see, you've got Celestians, which are basically the equivalent of Space Marine veterans. They can take more special weapons. They can be bodyguards for characters, inclu- either from your order or sanctified characters. Like, if you want a bodyguard for Morvan Vol, 
or Celestine, like she needs it. <laughs> or the Triumph of St. Catherine, like you can be a, a bodyguard for those things. Uh, Celestians are, are okay if you want more special weapons, although I think when we get to Dominions, they're a better case for it. But uh, Celestians aren't bad. The thing that's interesting with them now is since you can't take as many Storm Bolters in your Battle Sister squads, this is a place where you could take a unit of basically four or five, because I don't know if the... Let me look here real quick. So, I don't know if the... Well, it, see, one bolt gun can be replaced with a weapon from special weapons. One bolt gun can replace... This is where you can get your five sister unit with two. Yeah. So this kind of lets you build sisters units the way you could before at a cap of 10 and with two special weapons at five. Which is good because like this was... This, this gives them a platform because before like they were kind of an odd choice like they didn't really have a defined role at least here it's because they've limited down what can be in the battle sister squad you can get more special weapons in here and i so that that gives it a definitely gives it a a, a better place yeah agreed celestian sacrosants this is one of our new kits this is basically our close combat celestians and they come equipped with shield four up shields that give them a four up and vulnerable save they've got two up armor which is really nice they're they're very tanky for having, you know, it's rare. You don't see many tanky one wound units anymore, but this is one of those things. They have bolt pistols. The si the sister superior can ha replace that with like a plasma or hand flamer or inferno pistol. They come equipped with hallowed maces. They can replace them with halberds, uh, which we talked about this uh, before recording. And we were kind of looking at it. The mace is plus two strength, minus one AP, two damage. The halberd yeah. is plus three strength, minus three AP, but only one damage. So it's either you're doing more damage or you're sticking wounds better. And yeah. depending on what you're going against, the, the mace might not be a bad choice. Yeah, no, definitely looking at it again, like I and kind of talking about it beforehand. I, I think you're right. Like, I think it's a it strikes a really interesting balance. And uh, I could certainly see... Well, like the the spear of the faithful for the sergeant, like you're always going to take that because as we as we pointed out, get you one that does both. But I think you're going to see a lot of units mixing between the two. Since you don't have to pick one, yeah, I think when I build it, I'll probably do two maces, two spears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to build it because you know it gives you yeah a little bit of everything, and you know there are two attacks each, three from the the sacrosanct superior. So whatever you're going against, you're going to have the tools for the job. Yeah. And they, like I said, they've got a four up and vulnerable save from the shields. They've got the same bodyguard ability that other Celestians have. I think this is a unit that's a better choice for for that. Oh, for sure. Although, really, what it says is you just as long as they're within three inches of that character, the character can't be targeted with ranged attacks. So, which is basically it lets that character be in front, which would normally turn off lookout sir and let the Celestians still basically take hits well they can't take hits for them but make that character untargetable which is mm -hmm. good because some of these sisters characters do want to kind of lead from the front so i guess question on that i guess does that include like morgan vall like does that doesn't because it doesn't say anything about like the nine wound cap no well and morgan vall's only eight wounds anyway I guess she's only so eight, she's but yeah but she hmm. could be in front. They could be following up within three inches. She is a sanctified character. So, yes, you could absolutely protect her from ranged fire with a unit of sacrosants. With her with her running out front. 
Yeah. They'd have to be advancing to keep up with her yeah. because she moves eight and they move six. Yeah. But it's not a bad play. We've got the Hospitaller, who is basically an apothecary. Ministorm infantry units within three inches of her ignore wounds on a, on a six-up. And at the end of your movement phase, she can heal a Ministorm infantry model within three inches of D3 lost wounds once per turn. Uh, she's actually one where the feel no pain aura is, is actually an aura. So putting the book of St. Lucius on her is not a bad play to give her a six inch bubble of feel no pain. Although six up feel no pain is not enough to really depend on. So I could see not doing it, but she's a relatively cheap character and she also doesn't take up a battlefield slot as long as you've got a canonist. So I could see taking her. Um, the dogmata is our other chaplains the one we've kind of known is like oh this is your chaplain and this is like the combat chaplain as compared to the dialogus which is the non-combat chaplain she know you know war hymns and one other hymn just like the dialogus and then she can pick a model within si a core model from your order within six inches of her until the start of your next command phase, that unit has ob objective secured. If they already had objective secured, they count as double the number of models. So if you absolutely positively must hold an objective, throw her in. Yeah. Try to outman my, my 20 man sisters of battle squad is parked on this objective oh. when they're counting double. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Screw and you. I'm taking this. <laughs> yeah. And put them there. I would say also when a core unit's within six inches of her performing an action, that unit can still shoot without the action failing. So, right. mm -hmm. you know, she basically lets you score objectives. That is her thing. <sighs> and then we get to the elephant in the room. We really do. There's elephants Because now in it's, here? <coughs> it might as I well mean, be. These are sized. <laughs> yeah, the Paragon War Suits. Who boy. I'm going to call it, I'm just going to call it up front. This is going to get day one eroded. <laughs> like, I, I hope I'm, it yeah. does. It has to, along with Celestine. And the reason, like, one of the reasons why I was kind of taken aback at Celestine is because we first noticed it on this one. Paragon War Suits. Now, like, the stat line is better than a Terminator. And that's kind of where, like, these are on 50 mil bases. They're big. They've got two up armor save, um, four wounds each, strength five, tough five. Really good, which is really good for sisters. And sisters have needed kind of that heavy hitting power unit that is also still considered a sister. So this has filled a niche, and I like that. Um, they were always in groups of three, because it's always two Paragons and a Paragon Superior. Uh, by default, they're armed with a Heavy Bolter, two Storm Bolters, which are like shoulder-mounted, and then a Sword, which uh, lets them make one additional attack. So they're hitting four, they're swinging four times, lets them swing at Strength 6, AP minus 3, 2 damage pretty cool. Any of them can replace that with a mace, which makes them strength 9, AP minus 2, 3 damage, but they're hitting on 4s instead of 3s. Okay, fine. Oh, and these are vehicle storm bolters, so they are only 1 damage. Good, something will balance this. <laughs> now, you're like, you're thinking, okay, so, so far, this is, this is not unusual. This is kind of where we thought this would be. They had, yeah. they can take a multi-melta. 13 power level. 13 power level for three models. Okay, that's... Which is the same little... as, as Vol. Right. Vol comes in at 265 points. That seems right. And she's really beefy and very survivable. 
Okay, so what's the what's the thing on the Paragon Warsuits? Do they have an amazing invuln save? Nah, they only have the six-up Shield of Faith one. Okay, that's not too bad. They've got Acts of Faith, Sacred Rites. Well, that's like everything else in the Sisters unit. And then there's the Paragon Warsuit ability, which Games Workshop was kind enough to preview on the uh, Warhammer community page. Each time an attack is allocated to a model in this unit, subtract one from the damage characteristic of that attack. You'll notice I didn't continue and say to a minimum of one. And if you didn't, you really should. <laughs> because as as currently written, as currently written, these things are immune to small arms fire and melee from most things. They can charge into bolter fire. They can charge into a mob of orcs and not give a damn. Yeah. And then once they're in there, they're vehicles, so they can continue, like, take them in a storm heavy flamer, have three of them there with flamers, just, it's flamers and swords just charging in and cutting down everything around them, because they will not be affected by anything, as currently written. Now tell me, how much would you pay point-wise for, for such a unit? How much would you pay uh, per model? I mean... I I'm going to cheat and say 80. You're going to cheat and say 80? Well, that's not with cheating, the, Dennis, because... <laughs> with the correct ability on the Paragon of Warsuits, 80 sounds completely fine. <laughs> yeah, if they if they just reduce damage by one to a yeah. minimum of one, where bolters could still wear them down, melee attacks could still wear them down. Because, I mean, yeah. they've got two-up armor save. That's really going to protect them from a lot. And, you know, four wounds each. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, 80 points seems fair. It's wrong, though. According to the Codex, they're 240 points a model. <laughs> Which I just have to laugh at that because at first we, we said, okay, well, 240 and the same power level as Vol, but Vol doesn't have that ability. Nope, and Vol will die to bolter fire. And eventually. we brought up Celestine. Celestine is a lot cooler than these, and she's only 200 points. Yeah, and so I'm thinking... <laughs> This this must be a typo. That's 240 for the squad. 80 points per model. That makes way more sense. And so, you know what? The week this went up for pre-order, the new chapter approved came out with the new updated point totals. The ones we talked about, you know, where they even had to release Narada for the, the Thousand Sons of Grey Knights. Because those books are supposed to be out yet, and they're not. So, obviously, th this must be a typo in this codex. The correct price should be in chapter approved. Let's see. Space Marines, White Scar Salamanders, Dark Angels, Space Wolves, Green Knights. Ah, Adeptus Rotas. Let's see. Elites. Nah, da, 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 da. Paragon Warsuits. Unit size, three models. Fixed three models. Can't do one. Can't do two. Nope. 240 points per model. That's official. <laughs> it's locked in, baby. Unless also, they come up with a day one errata for the Codex. Also, looking at the uh, Warhammer community preview, which you mentioned, like, oh, yeah, you know, they previewed the ability. Paragon Warsuit. Each time an attack is allocated to a model in this unit, subtract one from the damage characteristic of that attack. End statement. Period. End of statement. Yep. So now, either a unit of three of these ca costs more than a knight. <laughs> and is far more survivable than a knight, frankly. Yeah, because you can wear down a knight with bolter fire and simple melee attacks, because I've seen it happen, I've done it. <laughs> I, yeah. So, when when uh, when Gazgul came out, mm -hmm. remember one of the things that I said, I'm like, I like the ability on Gazgul, I really don't want this ability on, like, every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes out going forward. But, like, this is one of those things where it's like, 
I'm seeing enough circumstantial evidence that I actually think this is what they designed it. They're like, no, this should be 240 points because of that. And I'm like, but I really don't want them to continue trying to one-up themselves and, like, give out abilities that make things more survivable and, like, one-up. Like, oh, this is now the most survivable unit in the game. I just, it's going to get really exhausting if they continue to do that. You know, if this is an intentional thing, or if this is something to, like, sell a wave of models when they come out, and then they change it six months from now, like, it's, that's well, really frustrating. Kevin, if that's the, the other thing that, that we've seen in the past was some armies played better at power level, some armies played better at points. If they don't change the points, sisters at power level are going to be insane then. Oh, 100%. I just... I want to believe this is just a misprint and they're going to errata it. I really don't want to believe I, I that they're... I so hope so. That, I, I don't want to believe that GW is so cynical that they put out these models with insanely, unbelievably good rules to sell a bunch of models and then change it. Like, I, I yeah. really don't want to believe that that's what they did. Because, I mean, even if these war suits were bad, <laughs> I was still going to buy them because I think they look awesome. So, yeah, I mean, they were going to sell them. They were going to sell models. So I really, they're sold know, out. They're yeah. sold out with the rules. What little rules are are known already? They're they're sold out. And yeah, this is this is ridiculous because it does break so many aspects of the game. You put the minute to a minimum of one on this and price them at eighty points in a piece, a unit for two forty. They're fine. They're yeah, good. You know, they're they're good picks. They're very they're, good. Yeah. But yeah, as is, they are broken as shit. <laughs> like, even, like, the Goonhammer unit review basically even says, yeah, we're assuming this is a re- going to be errated and they're going to be 80 points apiece and stuff like that. Because it's like, yeah, it can't not be right. I, I hope so. I, I'm going to be really yeah. disappointed if this is actually what they intended. Yeah. Let's see. So moving on from that, uh, the Repentia Superior is back. She still doesn't take up a slot if you have a Repentia unit. One thing I do like is she's got an ability now that says, in your command phase, you select a Repentia unit within three inches. Both she and the Repentia unit, uh, if they're el- both, they're both eligible to declare a charge in a turn in which they advanced. And each time a charge roll is made for this model or that unit... Each time a charge roll is made, you roll a D6, an extra D6 and drop one of the results. So, like, you, you're you charging on effectively 3D6, drop the lowest. And the great thing about that is one of the problems with Repentia Superior is the Repentia would outpace you. They would run up ahead, charge, and then fall out of range of your aura to give them better attacks. And that is no longer the problem. And now she also has a bubble of add one to their wound rolls. She used to let you re-roll wound rolls of one for attacks made by Sisters or Pentia. Adding one to the wound roll, I think, is just better, especially when they're using, like, strength six weapons. And then she used to let you re-roll advanced and charge rolls for Sorotas or for Repentia units within six inches. I think her keeping pace with them is a much better way to do this, but she has to pick a particular unit to do it for. And I think that's, I, I like this iteration of the, the Repentia Superior much better. Repentia themselves are, are pretty much the same as they were before. Uh, the Eviscerators are great. They still have Zealot. You still get a Miracle Die if a unit of them is destroyed outside the morale phase. And they ignore wounds on a, f- on a uh, five up and they've got their shield of faith and a seven up armor save. So it's like, 
they I mean Sisters of Repentia are pretty much the same. They look they actually got a like a point cheaper each. I still really like Sisters of Repentia. I love throwing throwing a unit of these at somebody and just watching something evaporate. Mm-hmm. Now, they used to have a strat that would allow them to fight a second time. They no longer do, but instead that strat lets them basically fight like Wolfen, where when they die, they don't you don't remove them from the board. They still get to fight until the end of the fight phase. So that actually makes them more useful, because a lot of times most of your Repentia would die in close combat if it wasn't your turn. Right. Uh, you've got Crusaders, Arcoflagellants, and Death Cult Assassins, which you can take without using a slot. If you're taking a Priest, they're all okay. More of a thematic army than anything. I mean, Crusaders are... don't. Well, for one thing, Crusaders don't have the old-school 3-up Storm Shield anymore. Um, they've got a 4-up Invulnerable save, which is pretty standard for Storm Shields now. So they're they're fine. Um, all of these have zealots. They're they're all they're like I said. They're all okay choices. I don't think any of them are terrible. Let's see. Getting to fast attack dominions. Uh, I always liked dominions. Uh, dominions were great for doing like a rush up melt a squad. And then last edition, they in the last codex they changed them so they couldn't allow like their transports couldn't scout anymore. They fixed that problem, so now they can scout again. Once again, the Dominion Superior can take a combi weapon. So uh, if you like flamers, take uh, four flamer, four minute storm flamers and, and a combi flamer. Also, you know, if they are in a transport, uh, the transport can make a move, which means a character can be in the transport. It doesn't say everybody in the transport has to have the ability. So nice. Yeah, so Dominions get to scout ahead and either on foot or in a vehicle and do their thing. I really like them. They're a great choice. Let's see. Seraphim are pretty much, again, your double pistol drop troops. Um, They did take a hit on their strats because there used to be a strat called Deadly Descent, which when you dropped in, you added six inches to the range of all your pistol weapons, and then you could shoot as if it were the shooting phase. This was really good for Inferno pistols because they normally have a Mm six-inch range, but they're melta-weapons. They their strat doesn't do that anymore. It just lets them shoot as if it were the shooting phase. It doesn't extend range, which means you, since you can't draw closer than nine inches, you can't use Inferno pistols if you the turn you drop in or at the time you drop in with that strat or really any time you drop in. However, hand flamers, Ministorm hand flamers are now twelve inch range and strength four. So maybe change them to a anti infantry unit and have fun. Mm, yeah, because. Because four hand flamers coming in at, at strength four and twelve inches will will do some damage. Otherwise, they are they're the same they always were. Uh, Zephyrim are more of the close combat squad where they have bolt pistols and power swords, and a pennant that allows them to reroll charge charge rolls. So the interesting thing um, with Zephyrim is they move from elites to fast. So yes, yes, that's, so that's they the are now there. Yeah, they're now directly competing with with Seraphim, but I see it kind of like the the Celestian Celestian Sacrosanct. It's like they serve different mm. roles. Are you wanting a shooty one, or are you wanting a close combat one? And that's where you, yeah, you know, where it's going to differ. And I think it allows you to more thematically. Let's say that you want to build an all melee army. You now have really good melee units in every slot that you can pick. Right. Yeah. So you there's support for a wider variety of builds, which is always good. And the yep. nice thing about both of them is they have the five up invulnerable save instead of a six up. 
Yes, yeah, having angelic visage is is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, see, now we're moving into heavy support retributor squads. Uh, retributors in the last edition they could move and shoot without any penalty. Uh, now they can't. Also, they had uh, rights of fire built in, which made their heavy flamers twelve inches instead of eight. They took that away because all heavy flamers are twelve inches. They used to have an ability to have two Armorium Cherubs and burn one to basically reload and shoot again. Um, they still do have that. You can use it once in your shooting phase, but you can't. I don't think you can do it twice in the same shooting phase now. So that they've toned that down a little bit. Uh, but yeah, they don't. They fire with penalty if they move. Um, however, you don't get any cover against them. That's their new Storm of Retribution ability, is they, they ignore cover. I mean, they're still good. They're still heavy weapons sisters. Yeah. And ignoring cover is is useful in this edition. But yeah, like... It is. The, the, the ability to ignore the heavy weapon penalties was really nice, but also made them very powerful. So, like, putting them in line with other, like, Devastators or Havocs where... You know, you kind of have to be more stationary to fire. I'm fine with that. Yeah. They're, they're still an okay choice. They're, they're, they're still totally fine. And there's a lot of competition in the heavy heavy support slot. So, you know, making them not like the obvious best option is, mm-hmm. is good. Better for balance. And um, we get to Mortifiers next, which uh, basically they more or less unified the uh, profile with... Uh, Penitent engines because it didn't make sense. Like because before, mortifiers could move further and had better weapon skills and they could get better saves. And they still can have one model with a better save, but they they lowered their movement. They made their points point level a little bit more comparable. They also toned down the the flails because the flails had three attacks, three three swings per attack, which was ridiculous. Now it's only two, so they've toned them down. Still have heavy bolters. They still have, or they can take flamers instead. They can take buzz blades instead. If you want to run them like penitent engines, I would. I would not run them like penitent engines. I would still use them as heavy bolters and flails if I was going to take them. They did remove their ability, make their heavy bolters assault three, or make their uh, heavy flamers into pistols. Now the heavy flamers one's not a big deal because they're vehicles. They can still fire at somebody or engage, which. Th- thanks to big guns never tire but losing the ability to fire the heavy heavy bolters on the advance does hurt them a bit yeah they they also lost the ability to go that they can only go 1 to 4 now they used to be able to go 1 to 5 in the unit size yeah they t- they they shrunk down the size of the unit a bit or they have a 5 up feel no pain instead of a 6 up which is a, an mm. update they also can't perform actions which, by the way, Arcoflagellants also also can't perform actions. Yeah, and then the last thing they had is they used to have an ability that said, like, uh, when they were destroyed, you rolled a d6 on a 4-up. They did d3 mortal wounds to an enemy unit within engagement range. Now, like the Wolfen thing, where on a 4-up, they stay in play and do their attacks before they're removed. So they're just more likely to still get to swing. Now, on the flip side, you have the Penitent Engines... Uh, which are always flamer and then either buzzsaw or flail. The buzzsaw went up to AP minus four, which is 
pretty slick. Uh, they've got four attack space, five if they take two buzz, buzz blades, which you can mix and match them, but don't. Just take one or the other. <laughs> but five attacks with buzz blades is, is terrifying. They can advance and charge, which gives them a different job than mortifiers, which is good. They ignore wounds on a five up. Um, and then, so, and both of these have zealots. So, you know, you're charging. So penitent engines are advancing, charging, and they're advanced, you know, so they're not, they can't fire their heavy flamers when they advance, but once they get in, they can continue to fire them, which is cool. And so now they kind of fill slightly different niches. Penitent engines are, are going to be more, the more aggressive of the two choices. Whereas the, and more, more toned toward, or turned towards, uh, like taking out large things if you take them with the pen with the uh, buzz saws. So I like that pennant engines don't feel outclassed by mortifiers quite the way they did before. Yeah. No, I think it's good. Yeah. Uh, we've got now we've got their two tanks, the exorcist and the brand new castigator exorcist took a couple of hits. One is they don't have a strat that lets them reroll their number of shots which is either 3d6 if you're going against the or going with the anti-infantry shots or the exorcist missile launcher is 3d3 and that's their old uh anti-vehicle shots although the ap is not nearly as good once upon a time it was ap minus four now it's just ap minus two and that exorcist missile launcher also costs them 30 points to take which is it hurts and the other thing is they dropped from being a tough eight tank to a tough seven tank because they basically said, oh, it's a rhino chassis. It should be strength seven or it should be tough seven, which is fair. But yeah, man, it it's it is a, a bit of a but kick in the pants. The the pipe organ isn't worth an extra toughness. <laughs> nope, it is not. I mean, it's a delicate if, piece of engineering. <laughs> if you want to feel sad, it also lost a wound. Yeah, it, it did flow. lose a wound. It used to, yeah, it used to be a tougher, more reliable tank, and uh, it also lost a strength if you were getting them into close combat, which you really shouldn't. I mean... <laughs> yeah, also by not being core, they're not eligible for a lot of the re-rolls that they were before, where you could park a cannonist next to it and re-roll hit rolls of one. Mm -hmm. So, like, exorcists have been toned down a lot, but their point total, their or their point cost was only toned down a little bit, and I don't know if they're a great choice especially compared to the castigator which comes in at generally cheaper has the same stat line except that its weapons are you either have the castigator autocannons which autocannons are good strength 7 ap minus 1 2 damage is great and theirs are uh heavy 4d3 so lots of shots or the battle cannon, which is heavy D, which has two fire modes. One of which is heavy D six, strength nine, AP minus three, three damage, seventy two inch range blast. Or seventy two inch heavy three D three blast, strength six, AP minus one, one damage, no cover allowed. You get more range. You get more variety of shots. You get stronger, better AP shots, and three. Uh, three heavy bolters to go along with it, as opposed to the one that they put on the Exorcist. The Castigator's a better tank in every way. I mean, yeah, side by side, I would take a Castigator any day over an Exorcist. Which is sad, because I have three of the old metal and plastic Exorcists. I do understand why they toned, well, they made some of the changes to the Exorcist, because the Exorcist was a very standout, very, like, you, you pretty much had to take one or two, like... 
because you just didn't have anything else in the army that provided the firepower and the range. And like it, it was an, it was almost an auto take for a heavy heavy support slot. So I can understand toning it down. The castigator is probably like you said probably better because it you know it, it has much more range, but it gives you another option to be able to like take out heavy things, which I feel the sisters needed. I don't know if I would have hit the exorcist quite so hard with the nerf bat, but I get why it it got toned down. Uh, I really wish what they had done is make the Exorcist launcher just have two modes instead of being a, yeah. a separate 30-point 30, 30 war gear to get it close to where it used to be. The other thing with the Exorcist that they could have done, and I know there's a strat for it, but that could have just been rolled into the unit. It could have been like the Plague Burst Crawler where it ha- just has indirect fire mode because you're firing missiles straight up into the air. Like, that would have been a thing where if you make these other changes, but you give it where it doesn't need line of sight, then it's a, then it is a choice. Because it's like, well, okay, I can park this behind a, into cover or park it away and still be able to reach out and do things. So, yeah, agreed. I, I think they hit, they hit the Exorcist way harder than they needed to for no clear reason. Because I think there were other things that people could take. And maybe it is to, to push the Castigator, but it's like you can't even say it's pushing the newest kit because the exorcist is still the exorcist kit is still only a year old so it's like yeah i i don't think this is necessarily like them saying like oh the new castigators you know we want to sell a bunch of these we want everyone to buy i think it's just that the exorcist was was like viewed as an auto take and it was like it filled such a unique role that like i get making some changes and toning it down i don't know if i would have done all of the changes that they did but I see it being cyclical. I, I definitely think at some point they will probably rebalance it point wise and and make it where it comes back into parity. But I, yeah, I get I th- why. Yeah, I think if either they made like made the launcher have two modes and not cost extra, and then give it the the indirect fire ability, I think yeah, it would give it it would give it more of a niche and it would differentiate these two tanks a bit more rather than the castigator just feeling like oh this does everything the uh, exorcist can do but more consistently and better. I will say this though, the exorcist is a much better kit. I really like that kit. <laughs> It's it's such an extra kit too. It's so extra. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Let's see. We've got the Sororitas Rhino. It's a Rhino with Shield of Faith and Axe of an Axe of Faith. I mean, it's a Rhino. Nothing yep. wrong with a Rhino. And then the Immolator, which is what if Razorback but holy and with flamers. And Immolator is also a really good kit. <laughs> pricey for a tank. Uh, also an extremely extra kit with the big stained glass window. I miss my old trouble bubbles on, on the older <laughs> Immolators, but... I mean, the Immolator's not bad, and like I said, Immolators with multi-meltas and a unit of melted dominions will just burn down something big, if you know, if, if you want to go that route. Uh, and then finally, the Battle Sanctum, which is their specific piece of terrain, which... Uh, it's now an action to get the extra miracle die. I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool terrain piece, but yeah, I don't yeah. think it's worth paying the points for. Nah. Um, and then finally strats. Again, we're not going to go through all of these. They still have, uh, cleansed by fire, which actually used to be one of the faction specific ones or one of the order specific ones. Um, 
you choose a unit that's firing a Ministorum fl- or fl- firing any flame weapon. Uh, don't roll the number of sh- don't roll to see how many shots there are. It's just automatically the max. You've got units that buff Zephyrim attacks or Zephyrim wounds specifically. Things that make Celestians better when they shoot or fight. Uh, things that make Arcoflagellants better if you were really tempted. Here's one like martyred. Whenever you lose a character due to or you gain a miracle die due to sacrifice, gain an additional uh, miracle die unless it was your warlord. Then gain D three plus one miracle dice for CP. Yeah, very cool. Things were here's one moment of grace. Spend miracle dice to bring a character back from the brink of death with however many miracle dice you spent. Wounds remaining. Make your one of your emulators just blow up because why not? Uh, you can pick up a jump pack unit and just redeploy it, which, let me see, can S- Celestine is in fact a jump pack unit, so yes, you can just yes. pull and redeploy C- Celestine should you desire. Battle Rights, this is the one that lets you swap out a uh, your currently active Battle Right, but you have to roll a d6. It is It has to be a random right. You cannot pick one. Mm-hmm. Deadly Descent is the Seraphim one that lets you shoot as if it the turn they come in from reinforcements no longer increases their range. So sorry that you took those Inferno pistols. Defenders of the Faith. This one's really good. Let's you just double the number of attacks for your bolters instead of the normal rapid fire rules for a particular battle sister squad. It has to be a battle sister squad and they get the transhuman physiology treatment of they only get wounded on four up. This is where your blob of 20 with bolters comes in. Mm-hmm. It's like you're going to put out 30, 40 or so attacks with the with these ladies, you know, depending on how many are equipped with bolters. And uh, they're just not going – they're going to take way fewer wounds. Really, really good. Holy Rage. Uh, you can give your core units either Zealot or Fanatic, but it costs more CP whether or not – depending on whether you have a priest nearby. <laughs> Purity of Faith, they deny psychic powers on a four-up. I mean, for an army that has no psychers, this army is very good at being anti-psyker, which it finally should be. Like, that's been kind of their whole thing. They're finally good at it. Um, Final Redemption, which is the old mortifier ability that now any of your engines of redemption, which is, includes penitence, can use. And then you uh, Blessed Bolts, which is the old Storm Bolter ability, the old Storm Bolter one. Instead of making your Storm Bolters do more damage, it lets your Storm Bolt, your Artificer crafted Storm Bolters in that unit on an unmodified hit roll of six do two mortal wounds and end the attack sequence capped at six mortal wounds. I would not bother with this CP, with this one CP strategy anymore. I would just stick with the, the two bolters or the, the two damage bolters. May, allowing up to three of them to maybe possibly do more damage is just not good design. And then finally, I think Holy Trinity is a good one because with a 20 model unit, you could actually build a sister's unit or even some of the Dominion units at like five. You could do this. Mm-hmm. You target a unit where one of your units is a bolt weapon, one of your units is a flame weapon, one of your units is a melted weapon. Um, then you add one to the the wound rolls. And if you mixed units will perform better. And that's the argument for having a in a Dominion squad putting a combi flamer on this the Dominion Superior instead of like a combi melta. Because mm-hmm. a combi weapon is also considered a bolt weapon. So then you have a melta weapon, a flamer, and a bolt weapon. You can always use Holy Trinity. It's a bit cheaty, but it works. And uh the the very last thing 
as always, will be the uh, the secondary objectives for missions. No Mercy, No Respite gets Leap of Faith at the end of each turn. If two acts of faith were performed during that turn by Sorotas units from your army, score a victory point if it's your turn, or two victory points if it's your opponent's turn. If three or more acts of faith were performed by Adeptus Sorotas units from your army, during that turn, score one additional victory point. Note that acts of faith performed by, due to cherub dice bestowed by incensor cherubs do not count towards the secondary objective. You can score no more than 12 victory points from this objective during the mission. So you'll never max it out at 15. And yeah, incensor cher- cherubs basically say once per battle at the start of any phase, you can roll 2d6, discard one of them. The value of the remaining die is the cherubs die. Until the end of the phase, the unit can perform an act of faith using the cherub die as if it were a miracle die. If the unit has a cherub die at the end of the phase, it's discarded. So it's like you can give yourself one-off miracle dice. They don't count for this. You have to consistently pull off two mir- uh, two acts of faith a turn to score this. Better if it's on your opponent's turn, but you can do it on your turn too. Like, it's, it's easy to do on your turn because you can just burn one yeah. on an attack. It's one of those where I get why this is capped at 12, because I think if you take this, it's an easy 12 to get, and it's one that you can, I think, pretty reliably get to the 12, but you are preventing yourself from maxing out the 15. So yeah. that's kind of the trade-off. Is it's it's it completely in your control, and I think you it's going to be easy to complete, but you're going to get fewer points for it, which is which is good balance. Yeah, agreed. Purge the enemy gets Slay the Heretic. At the end of your shooting phases, score a victory point for each of the following that applies. Um, one or more enemy units were destroyed by an attack made with a bolt weapon. One or more enemy units was destroyed by an attack made with a flame weapon. One or more enemy units was destroyed by an attack made with a melt weapon. All of these four Minostorm units within your army. If all three of these apply at the end of your shooting phase, then you score one additional victory point for a maximum of four. So again, encouraging you, if you're going to build your army to be mixed arms with the the holy trinity of sisters weapons might as well and you mm-hmm. can max this you can max this one out theoretically in four turns not a bad one to take if you build your army properly not every sister's army is going to be built to take advantage of this so it's not a must take it's if if it fits shadow operations get sacred grounds if you select this objective then Adeptus Sororitas Infantries and Cult Imperialis Priest Units from your army can attempt this following action, which I like the fact that you can like have your preachers or, minis- or missionaries do this as well. Sacred Grounds, one infantry or priest unit from your army can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase if it's in range of an objective marker that has not already been consecrated by your army. You can't start this action while there are any enemy units in the range of the same objective marker. At the start of your next command phase, the action's complete. Or at the end of the battle, whichever comes first, providing the unit performing is still within range of the objective marker. If completed, it's considered uh, consecrated. Uh, Each time a unit from your army completes the sacred grounds action, if the objective marker that was consecrated by that action is wholly in your own deployment zone, score one victory point. Otherwise, score four victory points. Um, some missions have more objective markers than others. That will they'll be easier to pull off there. But considering that everything in your army pretty much can do this as long as they're infantry, you can spread out and do this pretty consistently. This one wouldn't be that hard. 
and a lot of the mission a lot of the missions have like one objective marker in your deployment zone and then like two three or four outside of that you could you could actually max this out without too much trouble, especially if you don't mind. Uh, let's see, it's at the end of your movement phase. So it's like, even if you like, you could drop in a unit of like Seraphim on an objective and then immediately start consecrating it. Mm-hmm. And if they're like not in range to, to shoot anybody, well, no big loss. You took a five units unit of Seraphim and just scored yourself four points. Sounds good. Like a good, good use to me. And then finally, Battlefield Supremacy, defend the shrine. If you select the secondary objective after both sides have finished deploying, your opponent your opponent must select an objective marker on the battlefield not within their own deployment zone to be the sacred shrine objective marker. Um, if the only objective marker on the battlefield is in their deployment zone, then it becomes the sacred shrine. At the end of your turn, you score three victory points if you control it. At the end of the battle, you score three additional victory points if you can control it. And at the end of the battle, reduce the number of victory points you have earned from the secondary objective by three to a minimum of zero if your opponent controls the sacred shrine. So if you ever lose the sacred shrine before the end of the game, you lose three points. That's a design I don't think I've seen on any of these so far. Yeah, it's intriguing. But it, it, it's it's kind of funny because they even like put it in the you know in the quotations so, like if there's only objective marker on the battlefield is in your enemy's deployment zone then you must select that uh, if that's the case don't take this because that's dumb like <laughs> yeah I agree yeah it, it it's like I like what they're doing this one's tricky like this one's this one's gonna be at best very situational and I I personally don't like giving letting my opponent like decide what I need to do to score. But I get, but it's an interesting design. It is, it is, yeah. Because your opponent knows is going to know immediately where you're going to go, and so yeah, they're they're going to make sure that 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 even that twenty strong sister unit is going to have trouble holding that. So yeah, yeah, that one's a tricky one. And anyway, that's that's it. That's the sisters codex. Um, no wild changes from the previous version, but a lot of small tweaks, and then a couple of things that are potentially broken as broken as hell until we get errata. Yeah. Um, yeah I, Dennis, you're yeah. currently actively building a sisters army. What do you think of this book? I'm actually excited for it. I mean, this will actually be the first sisters codex I've actually purchased. The jury's going to be out on the Paragon war suits. I want to see how they finally rule them to determine if I'll use them or not. And, I don't know, I think as I'm building, I mean, I like doing a lot of the high mobility stuff, so Seraphim and Zephyrim. It makes sense that they both fall into fast, but I did kind of like the flexibility of having them in two different slots. Mm-hmm. But having them all in one is, is fine. I can now, in theory balance out my elites with the paragon war suits or the celestian sancrescents because just just how ha- i also like melee i like fast and melee and so so we'll, we'll see what happens on, on those when i actually get some of this played but unfortunately i don't think i'll probably dig into all the tricks that this army could do because i know rob you mentioned oh this is a good character this character buffs them if you have the canis or the priest they don't have- all that's out the window for me because I'm probably just focusing solely on the sisters and not as much on the the priests in the Ministorum. Maybe, maybe later I might get into that. But Well, like I said, the priest models are kind of harder to get because you're either talking about older metal or fine cast models. Well, you did buy all the models from Blackstone Fortress, so you at least have access to a missionary and 
and Preacher, theoretically. So mm. so you'd at least have those. But yeah, they they are harder models to get. And they're absolutely not core to your army experience. Like you can thanks to the fact that we have non cult imperialis sister priests. Yes. They're not even a requirement to have to get get the most out of them. So I really do appreciate that about this army build now is that you are not locked into, you know, short of troops, you are not locked into any one particular unit to get the kind of army you want. You're not even locked into Repentia if you want a close combat sister's army, which is cool. Which, which that, so. that did make me happy because I'm not really fond of the Repentia or the Penitent Engines or the Arcoflagellants. I'm like, finally, a melee unit that's wearing armor. I like this. and that's and that's totally fine and i i think they've done a good job of while while i do agree kevin that there's still a few few kinds of units that are kind of missing from this i think they've done a much better job at rounding out the army so that there's multiple options for particular builds and you can like you can go multiple ways on a shooting army you can go multiple ways on a melee army and those are you can be fast you can be slow and and moving forward and holding objectives like you the book supports multiple builds the orders support multiple builds and there's a lot of flexibility without any one thing barring things that obviously need errata there's not a lot in here that makes me think oh this this book is either super bad or super broken and we'll just have to see what happens day one when uh, this book hits. <laughs> if they're smart, they're going to release release some errata right quick. Yeah, yeah. but I, no, I like what they've. I like the changes they've made. It it feels it kind of like when we talked about with Mechanicus. Like this feels like more of a fully fleshed out army. You know, there's more options. I still think there's a few things they can add in the future, but I, I like what they're doing, and it it plays unlike any other any other army in the in in the game which is which is awesome agreed agreed absolutely true and uh, i think they're still gonna have like they've been one of the better armies competitively and i think they're still gonna have they're, they're still gonna be in a pretty good spot i think anybody getting into sisters and i think this is an army i would recommend to newer players because i think miracle dice are a lot easier to manage than all the craziness that mechanicus has and yeah. it's it's got a a fully plastic model line, and it's it's a fun, cool army to play. Um, this is a good starter army, and I think I think people will have fun with this at all all play levels. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that pretty much just takes us to hobby progress, and I will start off by saying I finished Mortarian this week. No oh, grass. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I fo- followed the Duncan Rhodes painting guide on the uh, the Warhammer TV YouTube channel, and other than like there was like one or two co- colors I didn't have in my collection, but I was able to make do with uh, you know a, a substitute. I'm really happy with how he turned out. Although as I was painting him, like I noticed a couple of things, like pieces where I didn't get like the sprue mark like where it had been on the sprue cleaned off as nicely as I want. It's just like one of these things, like I'm starting to notice all the little flaws with it as I get into it. And of course, at this point it's already primed and base coated. So it's like, Oh, I can't scrape it off now. I might as well just let it ride. So it's not necessarily a piece I would enter into like a serious painting competition because of that. But I got, when I took it to uh, the game store this, this weekend, when I took it to the game store yesterday, because I played death guard 
at my the tournament I played in, Morty got a lot of admiration. So I'm very happy with how he turned out. And so and by now admiration, I mean, do you mean comments or people shot at him a lot? Yes. Yes to both. <laughs> in fact, in my however, in my first game, he took eight multi melters to the face and shrugged off all but like wait well, it he he survived. He shrugged off enough enough to survive with four wounds remaining <laughs> and then proceeded to kill a few things. Um and then when he died, he exploded and took Celestine's last wound, because I had Celestine down to one, oh. the explosion caused a mortal wound, and she didn't get back up. Well, he did nice. his job. He did his job. Uh and second game against the uh against Adeptus Mechanicus, he took zero wounds. I made either every save or every re- uh, like revoltingly resilient roll. So, uh, and then third game against Tau, I charged him into a nest of missile sides and rail sides, and he survived the Overwatch. And like, and then he, my opponent fired everything that was left at him, and he still survived with one wound remaining, and kept going. So. He is a bullet magnet, but with being tough eight now and doing the combination of reducing all damage by one and shrugging off wounds on a five up, he can tank a lot of shots. So, yeah, he got a lot of attention in in both bullet and praise. But, uh, yeah, he is done. And I now tackle the scariest model I've ever had to paint. I, I don't fear many models, but I fear this one. And that is Giant Snake Marathi. <laughs> so not 40k model, but uh, but if I can, I figured if I can tackle Morty and I tackled Little Marathi, I can handle Big Marathi. So so she's she's next on the list. And then I picked up some. Uh, actually, managed to get some Blight Lord Terminators. Uh, those were back in stock, so I got a box of those and a couple of other Death Guard characters to kind of flesh out the rest of that army. Because I I I was rusty as hell playing yesterday, especially my first game. But Death Guard's a fun army to play, so I'm looking forward to to building and painting more stuff there. And then I will start this week on uh, like cleaning all my secret weapon resin, resin bases and getting everything prepped to rebase my sisters. And then I have to decide if I'm going to play sisters or Death Guard at uh, Show Me Showdown. Nice. So yeah, so that's it for me. So speaking of Show Me Showdown, I have been uh, firing up the 3D printers over the last week, and uh, after several misfires and getting some replacement parts and stuff, I will have hopefully have the bolter for Nathan completed this week um, to get him to ship out and uh, you know put together and paint and get ready for the event because uh, he wants to use it as one of the prizes. And also, he he mentioned a really cool idea. They have a company called Adaptive Subroutines Gaming that's going to be at Show Me Showdown, which basically they do um, like green screen photography. So the idea is not only, um, you know, is the the Primaris Bolter going to be a prize for the event, um, apparently it's going to be available for people to take photos with as one of the things that they're wanting to do. So really excited to get that out to them. And I, I'm, you know, I'm really happy with how it's going. And uh, yeah, that's been taking up kind of most of my time. I am coming back to Kansas City this weekend, so my hope is that potentially, if I can find time, you know, either one of the nights of the week or one of the weekends, that uh, we can get together and get a game in with somebody. But uh, otherwise, that's that's the hobby progress I've done. 
I know a place where we can play. Actually, I know I a place if you visit so. Dallas. Yep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a drive from KC, but... Well, yeah, or a short flight, yeah. Um, anyway, for, for my progress, I did not get as many of the sisters done as I wanted before I played Friends on Memorial Day. But I did get, like, my squad of Seraphim and Zephyrm completely done. Um, Celestine and the Gemini are halfway there, and then my troops were not really touched. Um, so I still have more painting work to do there. And in addition, because this was pre-order weekend, I pre-ordered a lot of sister stuff. I have definitely gone down this rabbit hole because, yeah, got a codex, got mm-hmm. dice, got um, the HQ, got the Paragon War suits, got the Sanker Sense. Um, so, yeah, when that order gets here, I will have almost 3,000 points of sisters when something I was going to try and keep around 1,000. I am so good at this. <laughs> You're in good One company, sir. Us. One of us. <laughs> uh, for me, for hobby with progress, um, work's still really busy for me, so I have managed to put together two Necron Wraiths. That's something. That's, that's good for me. <laughs> That no, that hey, it's models built. That's yep. that's still progress. So yeah, so we've all been you know keeping busy. Even Richard making models. So there you go. And so it's time to relax, and that means it's time for the morale phase. And uh, this is going. We're going to dip back into television for this one because I have been enjoying watching the Bad Batch, the uh, new Star Wars animated series. Yes, which. <laughs> Which follows up right on the heel—I mean, literally right on the heels of the Clone Wars series—and I admittedly, I have actually not watched more than like the first season of Clone Wars. I need to get back into it because the first season wasn't bad, but I understand it gets like really, really good as it goes on. So, yeah. like, I need to catch up with that. But uh, but Bad Batch basically is the story of a very special unit of clone troopers where. The the Kaminoans, the aliens that have been creating clones for the Republic, uh, decide to experiment and like what happens if we turn up the genetics for particular traits on a few clones to see what happens. And so you end up with this squad where instead of every everybody being more or less identical in in training and demeanor and and appearance, you end up with Five clones that are all enhanced in some way, but deprecated in others. So, like, you've got, like, Wrecker, the big heavy weapons guy, who's also kind of, like, he's, he is, he is strong like Rock. He is tough like Rock. He is smart like Rock. Or you have Tech, who is the opposite, where he is... Um, very intelligent and very technically uh, capable, but also kind of thin and slender and not not a, a big physical combatant. There's a sniper named Crosshair who's like tall, thin, and like highly advanced or like or just good visual acuity. And then the leader of the group's named Hunter, who uh, is a uh, basically specifies in like tracking and like stealth operations. And I said there were five. There's actually only four of the original clones, and then there's a fifth guy named Echo, who was a normal clone, and in one of the, I think I want to say it's like a fifth season episode of Clone Wars, apparently, he's just a normal clone who gets blowed up real good, and they have to basically replace him with cybernetics 
And so he gets attached to the squad because now he can't function like the other clone troopers can, but we can, he's now specialized. So we'll throw him in on into squad 99. And the series is basically about what happens to the clone soldiers. What happens to the clone troopers as the Republic gets replaced with the empire and especially with the fact that the, the clones are supposed to have these chips that make them follow orders from the people in charge, which in this case is the Emperor and the Empire. And the thing about the Bad Batch is their their inhibitor chips don't work terribly well. And so without giving too much away about because this cover is covered in the first episode, they effectively go rogue for the most part and are out doing their own things and uh it's been interesting to see where i again i don't want to get too deep into it but there's a an additional character that gets introduced who is apparently a key the key to an ongoing mystery there's at least you know there's a character that goes turncoat and there's hints that another one might be coming but we don't know yet for sure uh, they're dropping in references both to Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, and also there's a there's uh, mentions of a character who is first introduced, actually an appearance by a character who is first introduced in the Ma- Mandalorian. So we're getting like the back history on that character somewhat. So there's just a lot going on. Uh, also, the animation style is interesting because like it. It follows that same kind of stylized design that we saw in in Clone Wars and Rebels, but the way they're texturing skin almost makes it look like painted wooden puppets. Like there's something about the texturing mm-hmm. they're doing that gives it this like very almost painted feel on a lot of things. Yeah. No, the show's really good. Um if you haven't, you know, Clone Wars is a great series. Uh as you mentioned, season 1 is a little bit inconsistent, but they introduce it, what the show gets better is it kind of picks up what it wants to be through season, throughout season one and it decides that it wants to focus more on Ahsoka Tano um, and it wants to focus more on Domino Squad, the squad that Echo's from, and the clones and kind of follow those stories through the Clone Wars rather than focusing as much on Anakin as, and Obi-Wan as they started off on. And I think that's a it's a better series for that. And I think that the Bad Batch is an interesting tie into that. And I think it's it's learned from what the previous Clone Wars series wanted to do and what its stories it wanted to tell. But it also learned from like the Mandalorian, because the one thing that's very interesting about Star Wars is if you look at the various time frames that things have been happening, they all happen kind of in these transition periods, these periods of Star Wars. And like the Mandalorian and Bad Batch both kind of explore that initial transition phase. Okay the rebellion was won or lost. Now what? Now, how are we going to, you know, how are, how are soldiers or people that um, someone like, like the Mandalorian, who is, you know, a, a bounty hunter, kind of an independent agent, how do they operate in this world where all of the rules have just changed? You went from the Republic to the Empire and from the Empire to the New Republic. And what upheaval happens during those time periods? And I think it's a very fascinating time period to set stories in. So I'm really excited for like what the Bad Batch can do, not only with these, you know, five characters or six characters, but just what they can do with the world building and the storytelling, because I, I find it as a very fascinating 
uh, period of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. This this is one of the few times in something like this we get to see what, how the people on the ground because a lot of the people the Bad Batch you know that the characters are interacting with are like civilians, and yes. so we're getting to see how this transition is happening, how quickly people are accepting it because that's like one of the things that's always been been an issue. It's like if there's a rebellion. Well, then, how does everybody else feel about the Empire? And why, like, was everybody really quick to embrace it? Or was this something that, like, got, you know, forced upon them? Uh, mm-hmm. And we're getting to see how it happened and how people were being transitioned into it. And I think they're, they're kind of driving home that point that depending on how it happens, like, a, a, you know, basically a fascist totalitarian government, even in space can be applied in such a way that most people don't even really see a big thing about it because it just means, oh, well, the fighting's over at least. Because that's yeah. the, the one of the trends you see is like, well, the war's over and uh, maybe we don't need to see the clones around anymore because the war's <laughs> over now. Well, and that was, in, especially in season seven of the Clone Wars, the, the last season they did on Disney Plus that came out last year, that was actually one of the big threads of that season, which introduced the Bad Batch and introduced some characters that appeared in the last episode of Bad Batch, um, is that they really kind of drove home this point that, yeah, people on the ground, people that aren't off fighting the war, are just exhausted by this. And they don't care whether it's the Separatists or the Jedi or the Empire that's running things. They just want to be left alone. And I think it's a very interesting thing because it's not a perspective we've seen a lot in Star Wars. The movies tend to focus on, you know, the the big damn heroes. Um, right. And you get kind of that perspective of it. Whereas a show like The Mandalorian, which is wandering into big damn hero territory. But um, shows like The Mandalorian or The Bad Batch allow you to see a different perspective of boots on the ground and how it's actually impacting the people. And I think that's one of the things that excites me going forward for some of the other shows that they're talking about creating for uh, Disney plus, like the Rangers of the new Republic show also has which, that same potential where it's like, you well, could well, that show is actually if, happening. If it happens, like now. I'm sure it'll get retooled. I'm sure they'll retool it and reuse it. But like that show has the potential to give us more of that, boots on the ground perspective and kind of, you know, not necessarily look at the big picture, but look more at, you know, how these people are interacting and how you're interacting with civilians. And I, I just think that's a very interesting stories to tell because Star Wars can be this huge epic space opera fantasy, but it can also be smaller, personal and, you know, more, more contained. And, and I think that quite frankly, like the, the clone wars, I think anytime I talk about the Clone Wars, I always bring up the story arc because it's my favorite piece of probably Star Wars content. There's like a three episode story arc where Commander Rex and Domino Squad are on a mission to like take over a planet and beat it, beat some insurgents. And one of the uh, their Jedi commander goes rogue. And basically it's a three episode uh, apocalypse now heart of darkness story in Star Wars. And it's fantastic. And it's all contained with these five or six characters that are solely encased in this show. They're not, you know, off in any of the movies. Like, it's it's very small. It's very personal. And it's super effective because, again, it's Dean's group of people fighting for their lives, trying to, you know, grapple with 
whether it's okay to assassinate their commander because he is either evil or so incompetent that he's getting people killed. And like, that's really cool drama and really cool storytelling. And to me shows the flexibility that star Wars as a medium has to be able to tell these big sprawling epic stories and also tell these smaller, more personal contained stories. Yeah. And you know, you, you mentioned that and I think that might be one reason why it, it's a bit infamous at this point, but the Canto bite se- sequence from last Jedi, why that sequence didn't hit with a lot of fans, because I think it does delve into that territory of how does this affect the people who are like, how does the universe outside the big damn heroes behave? And while mm-hmm. it's off theme for the, like the core star Wars movies, it's the perfect thing to be addressed in one of the supplemental series. And I think, and I don't want to say necessarily like Ryan Johnson like shoehorned it in or anything. I think he was trying something, and yeah. it it did like some fans really dug it. I thought it was a neat aside to show that like to some people both of the side both of these sides fighting are just two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and it doesn't matter who's in charge. But I you know for a lot of fans you know that's not what they wanted to see in a Star Wars film, or it wasn't given enough time to really breathe and be its own thing. But then that would have made the movie too long and kind of messed up with the pacing. But yeah, mm-hmm. these stories where we can get these tales that you don't get to cover in a in a big flashy Jedi Skywalker driven movie, we can get in these stories and. It's just along the lines of how the different we've talked about how the different Marvel movies are like this one's a heist movie. This one's an espionage movie, but they're they're set in this universe, but it's using the language of that universe to tell this variety of stories. I think that's what what works in the with these Star Wars series is we're using the language of Star Wars, which at this point, everybody gets. Yeah, that to tell interesting stories and like my partner has enjoyed watching Bad Batch with me. She's not a Star Wars fan, but she liked Rogue One. She liked she loved Mandalorian. She's really digging Bad Batch. And really what she's found is like if it doesn't involve the Skywalkers at all, I think it's a good story. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, she's not the first person who said that. And I and I've always felt that about like Star Wars fiction. Like a lot of the Star Wars novels were all about the Skywalkers and it's like uh, but I, there's so many other stories to tell. And I think yeah. thanks to people like Dave Filoni, we're finally getting those stories told. And it's really cool. It's one of the reasons why 40K is, you know, has such a, a great universe to read novels in and why I'm looking forward to seeing animation because there's so many stories to tell. And in fact, my office is working on getting back to working in the office. And so we had a, a outdoor barbecue uh, Friday and, one of my coworkers who also has been painting minis and kind of starting to get into, into the game asked me because we were talking about the skulls reveal. And and he asked me, so if I wanted to read Warhammer fiction, like where should I start? Like what book do I start with? And I said, there are so many stories. Just pick one that looks interesting and go with it Mm -hmm. because you, and because like the timeline is spread out enough, like, you do, like very few of the books out like individual series you want to read in a row, but you don't like you don't have to read the Horace Heresy series to enjoy Gaunt's Ghost. 
you don't even have to read Horace Heresy to enjoy like the talent of Horace Black Legion stuff that Aaron Dembski Bowden's writing. You don't need to read any of them to like the Eisenhorn trilogy. Although you'll probably like Ravener more if you read Eisenhorn, but technically you don't even have to do that. You could read the Ravener trilogy on its own and be fine too. It's like yeah. all of these are but they're all very different stories. And especially now that they've got like the Warhammer Horror imprint and the Warhammer Crime imprint, like they're they're really trying to tell a lot of different stories. And I think Star Wars is now starting to hit that same kind, which is funny, like War, Star Wars is at easily the bigger fandom with like the bigger property with the wider, more diverse fandom. And they're just now really starting to get into telling those kinds of stories with decent production values because i mean they've had novels novelizations and side stories for a while but they've been a very mixed quality and i think now that you know as much as disney being a cultural hegemon you know is is a bit of a problem uh i think that uh them putting money behind this and 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 realizing some of the missteps they may have taken along the way. I mean, J.J. Abrams just came out and said, oh, yeah, we didn't have a plan for the sequel trilogy. It's like, no, really? We had no idea. Yeah, never would have guessed. <laughs> never would have guessed a bit. But now that, like, it seems like now they're kind of starting to form a cohesive plan. Or at least, you know, they they know people like John Favreau and Dave Filoni. They can put at the head of these projects and know that there's a hand on the wheel. And mm-hmm. telling, the, but but it's also a hand on the wheel that, while they're telling stories that are related, because obviously a lot of like a lot of the elements that were really cool, especially from second season of Mandalorian, were stuff that were brought in from Clone Wars and Rebels. It's like they're all connected, but they're still using this opportunity to tell different stories. And I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully this hasn't been a bad batch of an episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed our, our sister's <laughs> coverage as well. So uh, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up in, we don't know what's coming in two weeks. I mean, we just had two Codex reviews in a row, so I guess we're back. Well, in a couple of weeks, it'll be Age of Sigmar time, so hopefully we can bring yeah. it and talk about something different. <laughs> but until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. I'm Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and suffer not the heretic. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.